Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to another day of DC Leadership. We are excited to be here for our first connection of the day. We will be here four times throughout today and the first day of the leadership or the legislative seminar. I am Cindy Hollis, and I'm Colby Garrison. And we just are uh, excited. We are the membership services team. Um, my role in membership is manager of membership engagement. And Colby came on about 11 months ago as membership services administrative assistant. So uh, we are waiting for, oh, he's here. <laughs> hey there, Clark, you're here. Yay. <laughs> Man of the hour. The man of the hello, day. Cindy. Hello, Colby, and hello, hello Clark. Yeah. I was like, oh no, he's not going to get here in time, but you did it. <laughs> you are good, my friend. So um, here we ask you to come in here on the first day of Ledge, and not that you have nothing going on and no worries or concerns about today, right? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so we won't keep you too long. I mean, you're welcome to stay as long as you like, but why don't you kick us off? Tell us what we could expect today. Uh, that would be great. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for what you and Colby have been doing on these Connect shows, We're especially to start the day fun. and bring everyone in. Uh, <laughs> also, I need to get just like have Colby bottle and send to me <laughs> like a blast of sunshine here at the time change and daylight savings. <laughs> Holy cow. But we've got some great speakers and programming set up for folks uh, today and tomorrow for our two-day legislative seminar. I'm excited to be joined this year by my co-host making her first appearance at the leadership conference as ACB staff, Ms. Swatha Nandakumar, our advocacy and outreach specialist. Um, we've got friends from the blindness community, from our ACB affiliates and committees, as well as the, the federal government joining us here today. So it's, it's exciting. And of course, we have our legislative imperatives and our affiliates making their Hill meetings for following the legislative seminar. So could you go like a brief overview of what the four imperatives are this year. Absolutely. And I, I'll do this real quick because from 2.15 to 3.15, we'll be going over all four of the imperatives yep. in a little bit more detail for folks. Sure. Uh, but our four imperatives are the Exercise and Fitness for All Act, the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. So we want folks to have access to uh, exercise and fitness technology so they can take charge of their health. And for folks that have uh, you know, health conditions or uh, folks who have uh, acquired health ailments, we want them to have the necessary tools and resources uh, available to them so that they can privately and independently manage those conditions as well. Then we have the Website and Applications Accessibility Act. And we want Congress to, to act and tell the Department of Justice to finalize uh, enforceable standards for website and application accessibility online. And then also an update to the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act. I know we all love what's ha been happening with audio description and 
the accessibility of user, user interfaces um, so that we can watch video programming, media, and entertainment. But we need to make sure that those regulations passed now 12 years ago keep up as technology is evolving. So Absolutely. those are our four legislative imperatives. So is there any presentation today that really stands out as like, if somebody only had a block of, a short block of time, an hour, what, where should they be at what time today? Absolutely. So <laughs> I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> um, you know, it, I think it depends on what you're interested in. So for our folks who are interested in uh, transportation advocacy and pedestrian and environmental access, there's a breakout, I believe it's breakout B, dealing with the different levels of advocacy being hosted by our transportation and uh, pedestrian environmental access committees. So how do you advocate for transportation policy at the, at the national level, the state level, or the mm-hmm. local you know, city and town level? So I think that'll be a really good panel. And then this afternoon, you know, everything we do is related to technology, right? education, employment, healthcare, community events, all mm-hmm. rely on, uh, you know, broadband and internet access, as well as accessible technology. So we've got a, a great panel to close out today, beginning at 4.45 p.m. Eastern time from the Federal Communications Commission about broadband wow. adoption. Um, digital access and inclusion and accessibility. I love All right. that. Yeah. And I want to say thank you, Clark, for doing so much in the community, um, bringing advocacy and legislative, uh, the imperatives, concerns, you know, educating people um, and being part of our community schedule. I think it's made a huge difference on just widening our knowledge base um, in our ACB community. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you all. It's, it, it's always fun to meet new and excited folks. And I know that we've got a lot of community members who are joining the leadership conference for the first time this year. And we are excited to have you all joining us. Okay. So Clark, before we let you go, I want people to get to know you just a little bit better. So I know you were a Paralympian, right? Are a Paralympian. I mean, you. That's right. Never passed, never formed. Never, never were. Never, continue to be. Yeah. So tell us what you, uh, what you uh, did. Yeah. Yeah. So always a Paralympian, but I am now definitely a has-been tandem cyclist. Um, so <laughs> I, I competed in tandem cycling from 2006 through 2016, uh, racing domestically and internationally uh, for Team USA on both the the road, so individual time trials, uh, mass start road races, you know, where in the mass start road race, um, that's kind of like the events you see on TV, all the bikes start at once, Uh, the bikes that don't crash, uh, try to get across the finish line. Oh my gosh. I'm hurting right now. Just the thought of crashing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then also on the on the velodrome, the the banked cycling track that you know looks like they're generally around 250 meters, so they could fit fit inside a a 400 meter running track, um, but they are banked like a NASCAR oval. Oh so wow! Straightaways. I've never are banked. heard of that. 
you know, 15 to 20 degrees and the turns can be as steep as 45 degrees. And you did this on a tandem? On a tandem bike. Okay. Oh my gosh. The longest ride I've ever done is a little more than 116 miles. The fastest I've ever been clocked on a tandem uh, was just over 60 miles an hour. Oh my gosh. That scares the (laughs) heebie-jeebies out of me. (laughs) Wow. Oh, come on. It's fun to go fast. Uh, uh, you you had my attention sure. when you said like a NASCAR oval. Uh, you yeah, that's my that's interest cool. there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not one of my favorite sports. And and what um, did you ever uh, medal in uh, the Paralympic Paralympics? Yes. So the the only Paralympic Games I competed in was London 2012. Um, did not medal there, but had four top ten finishes. Uh-huh. Um, I, my partner and I, uh, shout out Dave Swanson, Tucson, Arizona. He, <laughs> he and I won the, uh, track cycling world championship in 2009. So got gold medal, got top step of the podium, got to hear the national anthem played in Manchester, England. And uh-huh. in 2011 and 2013, um, uh, no, excuse me, 2011 and 2014, uh, we won bronze medals, uh, one on the track and one on the road. Awesome. Well, you were just a a baby then. You you must have been like a 13-year-old or something, right? Uh, You know, it's a competitive (laughs) sport is a young person's game, Cindy. I'll I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) So you're saying you don't feel like you did back in 2011? Uh, You know, I... (laughs) Ever since I've stopped racing, people ask me, or they say, like, oh, you look great. What are you doing? It's like, well, I'm not training 20 to 30 hours a week anymore. I'm sleeping. I don't wake up in pain every day. It's, um, yeah. But I do know that you love exercise, and don't you do something like rowing or something? Don't you have a rowing machine or something? Am I... Uh, yes. Okay. My wife and I have a rowing machine as well as a stationary bike, um, and it's just a she's, she's more on board with the morning workouts. This is probably why I never could have been a swimmer. Um, (laughs) But when I do work out in the morning, I just find it, it just helps me get started in the day. Um, But I'm more, my default is more, uh, you know, get home from work, get on the bike or get on the rowing machine and just kind of decompress at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. Mm -hmm. So it, it helps, it helps me clear my mind, get mental focus. It helps my body feel good, um, you know, just in, in how I move and everyday tasks and routines are just easier when I have a good physical fitness routine, when I'm getting enough sleep at night, drinking enough water um, and all those things that go into a, a healthy, you know, yeah. balanced lifestyle. So I just, uh, back at the end of June, started riding, I got a, a, a stationary bike, a recumbent and I ride every morning with uh, two other ladies. We are on the phone together. Um, mm-hmm. So I ride in the, from 8 to 8.30, typically. <laughs> and, um, and today I set a goal for myself to drink a, my 30-ounce bottle of water before I'm allowed to have coffee. So wish me luck on that one. Oh. <laughs> Because I love my coffee, but I just started doing that and I did it while I rode the bike this morning. So 
anyway. Well, in, I mean, that's it's so important, right? And that's why ACB has our Get Up and Get Moving yep. campaign. And I yep, know folks sure. were excited to hear more about that yesterday, but also uh, tomorrow there will be a breakout session hosted by the Get Up and Get Moving campaign. It's why two of our legislative imperatives deal with um, accessibility in the health and wellness space. Yep. Um, and it's and it's why we are doing the advocacy work that we're doing, whether that's uh, reaching out to gyms and facilities like Planet Fitness and getting them to commit to purchase and install uh, accessible equipment, and also the work we are do- doing reaching directly out to the manufacturers, encouraging them to include a- accessibility Absolutely. so that our folks have access to those tools and uh, that technology. Awesome. Well, Clark, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I know it's going to be a very busy day ahead for you. Uh, I know it will go well. You've put so much work into preparing for this along with the whole ACB uh, team. And so thank you for all you do. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Get out of here. Get down, go. Everyone in the general session. Bye, all. See you later. Thanks, Clark. <laughs> uh, now, did Colby? I have to know. Did you learn something about Clark you didn't know? Um. Yes. I. Uh, yes, I did. What? I did not. I did not know that. Um. That his like his. You know what, why he was a Paralympian was for tandem biking. So there you go. Yeah. And now I'm very. Uh, I'm kind of curious to try it just to see what it's like. Have so. you never been on a tandem bike? No, I'm not. Seriously? No. Oh, Colby, <laughs> Colby, Colby, Colby. It's amazing. Um, I'm oh curious. Oh my gosh. Now. Oh, I, okay. That would be something for you and David. <laughs> Seriously. I was just thinking. I, that would be so amazingly fun for you guys. So well, Colby recently is engaged uh, and uh, planning planning a wedding sometime next year. Yes. Yeah. Um, So Colby, before we continue on and uh, we are going to take a little bit of personal privilege here uh, and talk some about the community, but before we do that, do you want to uh, share with folks how they can uh, check out the mini mall as well as the MMS program? Yes. Because, you know, and yeah. today's Sunday or Monday, not Sunday. Not today's Sunday. Monday. Oh my gosh. All the, it's, 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 it's all running together. together. It is. It's, yeah. It's been busy. It's been busy for us. <laughs> I will give you the mini mall information first. So if you want to purchase products from the mini mall, if you have any questions, any and all things mini mall, you can call 877 969 Six two five five, and Cindy, I think you said yesterday that's, that's nine mall. six nine mall. Yeah. Nine so six nine malls. Easy to easy remember. Way, yeah, yeah, to remember that. You can also email if you'd like to email as well. You can email. Look at that mall at acb.org. and you can actually get on their email list. Um, and we certainly would be happy to send the link to you at community at acb.org, or you can write to that mall at acb.org. But if you send an email to mall plus subscribe at ACB lists with an S at the end.org, you can get subscribed to the mini mall email list. So 
All right. All and right. I'll give you yeah. the information for the MMS, which for anybody who does not know is the monthly monetary support program. And if you want information about that, if you have questions, anything like that, you can email ask ACBMMS. So A-S-K-A-C-B-M-M-S, no spaces, just all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can call 888-999-3190. And uh, if Miss Jean does not answer, then uh, you can leave a message with your name and phone number and she or someone will call you back. And you uh, want to get in as soon as you can. Now, if any, if you are already giving through the MMS program, uh, any uh, amount, $5 or higher that you raise, you're already uh, giving. You're, you will be in a drawing. And if it's your first time or you aren't currently giving, and if you um, donate $10 a month minimum, I, again, you'll be put in a drawing. And I know later today, they'll be drawing for a $25 gift card to Amazon. And tomorrow, they will be drawing for $100. So, um, yeah, that's pretty cool. And one of our hosts, uh, Danette, won for yesterday. So that's pretty cool. She's a facilitator and a host in the community. And so um, uh, that's a great leeway for us in the community. What do you think? Is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Colby, you came on board uh, back in April of last year, and really your main task has been uh, putting the community events schedule together. And so um, I do want you to share a little bit about what that looks like and what kind of calls are on on our community schedule. We do our schedule like a Sunday to Saturday week, <clears throat> although, I mean, for the average person that's receiving the daily schedule. It's just a seamless day after day after day <laughs> after day. There's never a break. It never uh, stops. It never stops. But we do have some timelines that we work around to keep a handle on all of this, right? So why don't you share with folks some ideas about some of the calls that we have and um, how they might get on our email list and how they can access the daily schedule and all of that stuff. Sure. So if you're not involved in the ACB community, we would love to have you. It's really easy to get uh, plugged in, if you will. You can simply send an email to community at acb.org and let us know you would like to be subscribed to receive our daily schedule. And once we subscribe you, you will get the daily schedule of events. Um, it's usually sent out the night before for the following day. And we have just a wide array of events, everything from exercise classes to learning French, learning Latin, um, technology. Uh, our friends at Vispero, they do a, a series each week, uh, technology on a different topic. So on a software feature or how to use a software better or some of their hardware offerings as well. It really kind of varies. Um, we also have 
calls on how to use your Android devices more efficiently and effectively, how to use your iPhone more efficiently and effectively. Um, Even tonight, there's a features and fun of iOS at 7.30 p.m. Eastern tonight. And there's religious calls. um, So some that are Christian, some that are spiritual, and even uh, the Jewish hours. So it's happening this afternoon. Yes. So a very book chats from specific, like a specific book that uh, the group is reading, you know, over the next two weeks to uh, one around disability or ACB or um, uh, what else do we have? Crafters. Oh my gosh. Let's talk crafters. Our crazy crafters. They are amazing. We do. They've been, uh, they started. It's so funny. They started in June of 2020 with one call and they planned to maybe be one hour every other week. So twice a week. By August, they were uh, an hour and a half on Sundays and they were bringing two two hour classes, one on Tuesday and one on Thursday. Uh, And they now give us about what over uh, it's got to be about uh, twenty hours a five a, events, maybe a week, five, four or five at least. Yeah, so they have the crafty gab on Friday. They uh, do knitting and crocheting, and uh, today they're doing braille drawings. drawings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you just tomorrow. never know. They've done sewing and and things with glue, and you can buy. And they they've paired up with uh, Mitzi kits out of Orlando. Florida and so people can buy those kits and do quilting. I still have my quilt I need to finish sitting (laughs) anyway. Oh my gosh, I just drives me nuts that I can't finish a project. (laughs) Um, but anyway, uh we have somebody that every so often does a a foodie call and there's a call music calls and Home yes. garden and agriculture that just happens once a um, month, right? That's yeah. Um, so really something for everyone, and of course, our social uh, we, calls. The social calls. No, yes. I, I mean, these are amazing and people love them. In fact, I have one I do on, on Monday evenings at six Eastern called the Friendship Circle. I was going to pass it up to today, cancel, and did not include it in our original hosting schedule. And last night I was getting ready to put the schedule. I'm like, you know what? I need to keep this in because people, they love it and it's breakouts and they just really love it. So I put a call in to one of our hosts and facilitators, Herbie, and he said he would be willing to facilitate that for me. And so it is going to happen. And I know that will make some people very happy. Um, But we have coffee socials every day. Uh, They originally started just twice a week. But now every day and have been for over a year, um, probably a year and a half. We've been doing. We held our seventy five hundredth event yesterday. Yesterday, yes, isn't that amazing? Seventy five hundred. So if you're like going, what in the heck are they talking about? You are missing out, my friend. And if you do take part in our community events, please share this with other people. You do not have to be a member to be a part of community. Um, that's, you, you know, what we want you to know. 
And if you know somebody or if you don't have access to email, you can still participate. You can call in and participate on the phone. All of our events are held via Zoom. And so you can call in from Zoom on your computer or your tablet or your smartphone or your landline. And you can also access the schedule via the telephone as well. Um, it's a pre-recorded schedule. I read it every week. And you can call one 800 424 8666 and you'll follow the prompts that are given and you can read the schedule each day via the phone system and so just have like a little mini recorder or way to braille down the the meeting id we always use the same zoom phone number 312-626-6799 and uh but there are several numbers but that's the one we always publish um if you get on our daily schedule, you'll receive your schedule in your inbox, usually the night before for that next day. And we always do a sneak peek of the following day so you can start to plan a little bit and see, oh, gosh, that's when uh, French is taking place or whatever it might be. And um, it's just a great way to connect with other people. Many of our committees and special interest affiliates, actually many of our affiliates, Hold events as part of our community as well. So yeah. it's a great way for, I think last night, didn't we have uh, Ivy? That's um, yeah, on, usually impaired <clears throat> entrepreneurs. They had an event on um, the did strengths it, and weaknesses and opportunities and threats for. Did ACB radio or not radio amateurs also have theirs last night or was that the yes. previous week? Okay. Yep. Yeah. So we, I mean, those are two of our special interest affiliates. Um, I know Lions does theirs on community. Okay. Blind uh, bits. Yep, they bring a lot of stuff. Yep. Stuff. Uh, Braille Revival League and Library Users does. Yes. Um, certainly every week, AAVL, which is the Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss, they do one called the Ins and Outs of uh, Vision Light Loss or Sight Loss Later in Life um, every Tuesday at 4 p.m. That's a really popular one. It is very popular. Great peer to peer support. Uh, ACB Next Gen has been bringing uh, the financial sense call, and um, you can learn Braille with Braille together and Braille Room. And and CCLVI brings is it three calls every week on yes. a regular basis, right? Yeah, which is our Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. So something for everyone, and we just don't want anyone missing out. Uh, Thursday night we are celebrating. Two years, two years of community started on St. Patrick's Day in 2020, just at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, we have no, there's no signs of slowing down no. or stopping what we're doing. In fact, we are bringing more and more to the community now than ever before. Um, Colby, do you want to give a quick overview of what sure. people can expect when uh, between now and the next Connect show, so yes. uh, as we get started into the legislative seminar. So you will hear from Clark Rockfall and Swatha Anandakumar. They're our ACB advocacy team. We heard from Clark just a bit ago. You'll also hear from the U.S. Access Board and the National Council on Disability. Wow. And then you'll be back with us as you transition to one of three breakout sessions and you just stay right here on ACB Media 6 to hear the rest of the legislative seminar in general sessions, or you can listen to the breakout A, B, and C breakouts 
will be heard on seven and eight, respectively. And that gives me an opportunity for us to just give a quick shout out to the team with ACB Media. So much of community is also streamed live and or put into automation on ACB Media 5. And we appreciate all of the streamers and yeah. those who edit our um, our events for podcasts and certainly all the work they are doing for this conference. Um, just it's it's like magic for all of us that are enjoying it. But we know a There's lot of work. So much that goes into it behind exactly. the Exactly. And just Rick and Larry and the rest of the team at ACB Media, we appreciate you. It's and if you're, you. if you're wondering about podcasts, you can go to acbmedia.org, go to the search field and put in a word like Vispero or Apple or cooking or recipe or music or whatever. And you could see what podcasts are available and click on them directly. So anyway, boy, Colby, it's time. It's and time man. for us to say goodbye, but just for now. And we just will. Just for a little bit. And we'll be back. See you <laughs> soon. Good afternoon, ACB family, and welcome back to day three of our DC Leadership Conference. It's just been so much fun uh, hearing all our wonderful panels for the first two days. And a special shout out to the folks that participated in our fireside chat last night, Cindy and Ken and Kirk and our own Eric Bridges. Hope you all uh, enjoyed the fireside chat. I know I did, and it was great to hear each of their personal stories and learn a little bit about what it's like to be a blind or low vision leader in a rehab facility. So thanks so much to each of them. I uh, wanted to also remind everybody about our wonderful sponsors that have helped us with the DC Leadership Conference. We have three sponsors at the presidential level. We have JP Morgan Chase, a special shout out to them. And at the congressional level, we have Vanda Pharmaceuticals. And at the Beltway level, we have Vespiro. So thank you so much to each of our wonderful sponsors for helping us uh, provide some of the resources to put this wonderful event on this week. I'd also like to take a moment to announce our um, <clears throat> Sunday winner of the monthly monetary support program prize. That was Danette Dixon. <clears throat> Excuse me. That was Danette Dixon from the state of Washington. So congratulations, Danette, to your, for your $25 Amazon gift card. And just remind everybody that it's still plenty of time to pledge for the monthly monetary support program. If you're a new uh, contributor, it'd be a minimum of $10, or you can up your pledge by a minimum of $5 to get into the drawing. We're going to have one more $25 drawing and then the big $100 drawing on Tuesday. And those uh, email and phone number to get involved. First, the phone number is 651. <clears throat> excuse me, that's wrong. I got to get my numbers right. My, the phone number is 888-999-3190. Again, that's 888-999-3190. Or you can email Gene at 
askacbmms at gmail.com. So that's askacbmms at gmail.com. So Gene's standing by. Hope a lot of you all will get involved and make a difference for the American Council of the Blind. Also wanted to take a moment to give a special shout out and thanks to Gabriel Lopez Cafati. You all may not have realized this, but uh, Gabriel uh, is the chair of our Multicultural Affairs Hispanic Subcommittee, and he's volunteered his time here over the last week to two weeks to prepare all of our translations for our materials that you've seen this week. So the registration form, uh, the legislative imperatives, uh, the information that's gone out with uh, shouts on our social media. Uh, thanks to Gabriel for putting all of that together as a volunteer for the American Council of the Blind. And we're happy for all of his contributions. And we're also excited that we've engaged Catholic charities that will be working with us to help translate the uh, two-hour highlights each day from this DC Leadership Conference. So it's truly a collaborative effort. And I want to thank, once again, Gabriel and Swatha Nanda Kumar for all of their help doing the Spanish language wrap-up shows each and every day. They'll be on again from 6 to 6.30 this evening. And before I hand it over to Clark, one last thing. If you'd like to participate and ask questions during the conference today, please remember to write your questions to questions at acb.org. That's questions with an S at acb.org. Or you can contact Janet Dickelman either by phone or text at 651-428-5059. Again, that's 651-428-5059. And now I am so honored to introduce to you our Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, Clark Rackful from Alexandria, Virginia, to uh, take us away with two days of wonderful ACB Legislative Seminar. Welcome, Clark. Dan, thank you so much, and hello, ACB. Uh, I am Clark Rockfall, your Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, and I am joined by my co-host, my partner in crime on advocacy efforts, and for the next two days here at the Legislative Seminar, uh, ACB's Advocacy and Outreach Specialist. Swatha, how are you doing? Swatha needs to unmute. So Swatha, while, you, while you're getting situated and off of mute, uh, again, I just I'm great, Clark, how are you? There we go. Hey, first day for us. <laughs> so, you know, we get to do stuff behind the scenes. Now we're now we're front and center and on camera. So day one for us, folks. Think of it. <laughs> so great. Hello, everyone. Again, uh, day one of our legislative seminar. Uh, Swatha and I are prepared to bring you two full packed days of public policy related content. And everyone knows that ACB has our four legislative imperatives this year. And we'll be going over those again shortly uh, in the, the next session. Uh, but then we also have multiple breakouts, both today and tomorrow. Um, 
Uh, it's probably no surprise to folks that the, the advocacy work that we do uh, cannot all be squeezed into four legislative imperatives. So we are fortunate to have this platform to not only highlight our four legislative imperatives that you all will be championing with your meetings, uh, with your members of Congress, but also we have this platform to bring to you additional public policy and advocacy related issues that we know are important to ACB, the organization, our committees, but most importantly, our affiliates and our members. So following the overview of the legislative imperatives here today, our breakout sessions will concern uh, what affiliates can do to help the national office uh, with advocating for our ACB resolutions. Uh, folks may recall last year, there were around 30 ACB resolutions that were uh, drafted by our members, uh, reviewed by the ACB resolutions committee, and voted on by our board of directors. And try as Swatha and I might, we alone cannot implement uh, all 30 of those resolutions. So we really need uh, the engagement of our members, committees, and affiliates to help the national organization uh, really carry out the will of the members. Uh, Swatha, you are participating on another breakout here this afternoon. Why don't you give folks a quick overview of that? Yeah, so Claire Stanley, who is the previous advocacy specialist, um, and I are um, hosting a panel on Hill etiquette and how to effectively advocate with your with member, of, member of Congress. So we're going to cover everything from um, how to prepare, what to wear, how to look on Zoom, to how to follow up after, afterward. And um, and we'll also would, would say, would say in between, in between, in between. Um, we're also going to get some role playing with um, some panelists. So Katie Frederick and Michael Garrett will, will um, talk about um, advocating on Capitol Hill and also have the audience come up and play, do a um, session with us. So, yeah, we're packed. Thank you, Swatha. And I'm so glad that you highlighted uh, the need to provide feedback because folks will probably get tired of hearing me say it, but if a Hill meeting happens and you don't fill out the Hill feedback survey or send an email to advocacy at acb.org and let us know uh, how the meeting went, it's like a, a tree falling in the woods. We don't <laughs> receive the feedback. You know, did the meeting ever happen? You don't so, know how to, how to respond to either, how to respond afterward. Exactly. And then our other breakout hosted by the transportation and the newly renamed Pedestrian and Environmental Access Committees will be looking at advocacy at the various levels of government. So primarily focused on transportation and the newly passed Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. But what transportation advocacy looks like at the federal level, at your state level, as well as your local uh, municipal city and town level. So we're really excited for those. And then our closing general session, which you certainly will not want to miss, uh, we have a, a broad look at broadband adoption, as well as uh, accessible user interfaces and video content. Uh, shout out to the audio description project 
for the great overview they did yesterday, along with the announcement from CBS Viacom that they are audio describing nearly 100% of their primetime CBS broadcast content. Uh, But also we'll have the Disability Rights Office from the FCC because we always want folks to uh, raise issues and areas of concern directly with folks at the Federal Communications Commission. So Swatha, uh, we might as well jump right in here today. We are kicking things off with two guests from the federal government, uh, giving us a, a broad overview of disability policy and what the federal government is doing. Uh, we are glad to welcome back Dr. Sachin Pavitran, the Executive Director of the United States Access Board, as well as Ann Summers McIntosh, the Executive Director of the National Council on Disability. Uh, Sachin and Ann, welcome to the ACB Legislative Seminar. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And Swatha, I'll let you take it away from here. Absolutely. So I just want to get to, we want to get to know, know, know you both better. So um, can you tell, or Anne first, can you tell us about what the NCD does or what its role is in, in the federal government? Absolutely. Uh, it's unfamiliar. We have been in the federal government now for 38 years. And um, we began as a very small um, Uh, Actually, we were in the federal government longer than 38 years. We started as a a little advisory body in the Department of Education, um, and we only gave advice about education of students with disabilities. But in 1984, we um, became fully independent. And so since that time, we've the ability to um, tackle a broad range of topics. So anything cradle to grave, um, anything under the sun and all disabilities. So we advise the president, the U.S. Congress and other federal agencies, as well as state policymakers um, on matters that affect people with disabilities. We have a very broad mission statement, which is wonderful and awful at the same time, <laughs> uh, because we always have to make hard, hard decisions on what to focus on in any given year. Um, but it, we have um, been able to make very high impact with our small resources and staff. Um, we're most, I guess, well-known and famous for being the authors and the, um, the original suggestors, I guess, would be a, a good way of putting it. Um, we advised Congress to, um, to create an Americans with Disabilities Act. And then we, we drafted the first, um, the first version that went up before the Hill for consideration. And so that's our, our history is inextricably tied with the ADA. And we, we benchmark all that we do against the, the four goals of the ADA. Um, and we are comprised of five presidential appointees and four congressional appointees and a very small staff of 11 professional um, staff in the, the greater D.C. area. Absolutely. Um, same for you, Sachin. What does the Access, Access Board do and what does it role in the government? Thank you, Swata. And I'm glad to join all of you today. And uh, thanks for inviting me back. So the U.S. Access Board, we've been in existence for close to 50 years now. So in 1968, the Architecture Barriers Act is the piece of legislation that brought the Access Board into existence. That's not the legislation that started the Access Board. That is the piece of legislation that's opened the pathway for the Access Board to come into existence. The Architecture Barriers Act being the legislation that 
defines accessibility for federal spaces on what the standards needs to be for federal spaces. So in 1973, the Rehab Act is what brought Access Board into existence as, as a federal agency. We are a small federal agency of uh, about 30 staff and 25 board members. Uh, 13 of the uh, 25 board members are appointed by the president uh, from the public with, uh, from around the country. And the remainder 12 are heads of 12 different agencies, such as uh, Department of Justice, Transportation, Commerce, GSA, Interior. So uh, 12 different agencies, uh, senior level political appointees serve on our board. So uh, 25 governing members of the board. The role of the U.S. Access Board is to define accessibility. Accessibility is our bread and butter. We work on anything and everything to do with accessibility, whether it's uh, built environment, uh, uh, visual accessibility, medical diagnostic equipment, whatever it might be when when there's accessibility, conversation needs to happen that we are the agency that set the standards and guidance to what that should look like. Uh, we work closely with all federal agencies on these different regulations that the Access Board puts out. Uh, we don't enforce all the standards and regulations we put out there. The only standard and the only regulation that the Access Board enforces is the architecture barrier set the ABA, that is the, that is the one regulation that we have authority in enforcing. So if anyone finds accessibility barrier in the federal space, we have a, a mechanism to receive the complaint and then work with the federal entity to remove that barrier. The rest of the regulations we work for, even though we set the standards, other agencies are the ones that enforce them if they adopt and uh, are legislated to enforce them. We don't have any authority in enforcing. That's often a confusion that exists because we do write standards for a lot of different uh, uh, different uh, regulations out there, but we don't have the authority to enforce uh, those regulations. So. I'll give you an example. Um, Section 508, which a lot of us are familiar with, the U.S. Access Board wrote Section 508, and we uh, the standards are out there for federal agencies to utilize, but we don't do not enforce them. In fact, uh, Section 508 is a unique kind of uh, regulation where all federal agencies are self-enforcing. So it's uh, Probably not the best <laughs> scenario because self-enforcing goes only so far. So, so that that is our role. Uh, we we are a reg- regulatory agency working on different standards and guidance on all the various accessibility issues that's out there. Um, we do enforce the ABA, and uh, we uh, try to be a, a a player in the accessibility space, uh, both within the public sector and the private sector. Okay, great. Um, so can you both talk about your roles at NCNX, NCNX board? Um, we'll start with Dalton first. 
So I'm the executive director of eAccess Board. So my role is to oversee the overall mission of the Access Board. Now, the governing board members uh, gives us the direction on what needs to be the priorities for the Access Board. When we work on different rulemakings, the different uh, rules that we are working on, the board is the one that sets our uh, priorities. They also set our strategic plan for uh, for the next uh, four years that every federal agency is supposed to um, put forward. The, as the executive director, my role is to work with the staff to ensure the priorities set by the members of the board is executed and also do the day-to-day uh, activities to ensure the smooth running of the, uh, of the agency. And Anne, yeah, very similarly, um, I'm also the executive director of our agency. So um, very similar to the access board, our council does set the policy priorities. Um, the staff has um, degrees of discretion within the four corners of the priorities that are set by the council. Um, and again, very similar to the access board, um, we um, uh, I am ultimately responsible for working with our team directors on the staffing, the operations, the financial and policy development pieces. Um, and um, one other thing I would add is um, something that's unique about um, NCD is because we are fully independent and we're purely advisory, we do have a, a, a huge degree of flexibility in determining what the policy agenda will be for the council. Um, and I would say that it's um, equal parts push and pull. So we, um, what I mean by that is um, the council will set an agenda of things we would like policymakers to care about, and they may not care about them. <laughs> um, and we try to make a compelling argument for why, why they should and what our solutions are to the problems that we like to raise to their attention. And then we also um, have a fair amount of um, technical assistance and response that we give to outreach that we receive from policymakers who are looking for NCD's expertise and um, policy solutions for problems that they identify as priorities. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of both in equal measure, I'd say. And so if I could add real quick, and brought up an important point. So one of the biggest difference between the Access Board and the NCD is uh, we, we don't have that uh, liberty to kind of set our priorities unless Congress gives us the authority. So when we work on regulations, we need it needs to be in legislation, and we need to be granted that authority through Congress before we can take up uh, working on any particular standards. Mm-hmm. You see a lot in like legislation or bills like the access board, access board should like do do this or do this, and so it's kind of now we now we all know about like you have like you have to do we have to do that if we want if we want we have any power at all. So interesting. And um, and just to follow up with your um, F, yeah, just follow follow up. Um, last year and the year before, we had um, Andres Gallegos, the chair of NCD. Um, so, how does your role differ from his? And how do you um, yeah? So what do you, how does it different differ differ? Oh, I'm I am the lower co- lowercase b boss b o s s. He is the capital B <laughs> boss, uh, capital B uh, b o s s. 
Um, he was designated by the president on the first day of the Biden administration last year as the um, as the chairman of the council. Um, so his his role, um, he was appointed by uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, and he um, was designated by the president as as its chairman. So he really is the captain of the ship. Um, he steers things and he um, he's ultimately responsible for the direction and um, uh, of the council. Um, and I work at his behest. So um, thus the lowercase b little boss <laughs> of, of, of the staff. So um, his role is um, is all of our council members serve um, no more than two, three year terms. Um, so he is in his second year of his, I don't want to misspeak, his second year of his second term. So um, he has this year and next year, and then um, he will wrap up his time and um, someone will presumably be appointed behind him. So um, all of our council members are on um, um, you know, set periods of time for service, whereas the staff um, generally have a, a longevity to them as civilian employees. So that's, um, that's one of the major distinctions as well. All right, back to you, Clark. All right. Great, thank you so much, Swatha. And uh, folks, I'm gonna run through some, some moderated uh, questions here with our guests, Sachin and Anne. But again, as Dan said earlier, if you have questions that you would like to be asked towards the end of this session, please email questions uh, with an S at the end, two S's total, questions at acb.org or call or text Janet Dickelman at 651-428-5059. So Sachin and Ann, you both talked about the priorities and areas of focus for the Access Board and National Council, Council on Disabilities. Uh, I know a big one for both of you is accessible health and wellness. And it just so happens that that's a big priority for ACB as well. In Towards the end of 2020 and throughout 2021, we've been focusing on our Get Up and Get Moving campaign. Um, and that is a multi-year effort that focuses on advocacy, partnerships, and public awareness um, to improve the health and wellness um, and access for our members and the broader community. This also touches on two of our legislative imperatives this year, the Exercise and Fitness for All Act, as well as the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act. Um, so both of these bills were introduced in 2021, one focusing on the need to create accessibility standards for fitness and exercise equipment, for people with disabilities, including people who are blind and low vision, and the other focusing on non-visual access to durable medical equipment and medical diagnostic devices. So Sachin, I'll turn to you first. How is the Access Board working to increase accessibility uh, in terms of health and wellness? Thanks, Clark. Uh... So, it, 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 obviously, this is a very important topic for, for me personally as well as a, as a blind person myself. Um, you know, I'm very, very well aware about the lack of accessibility that exists when it comes to fitness equipment and also me medical diagnostic equipment. 
Um, so when it comes to the fitness equipment, I know there's been a bill introduced where the access board is uh, indicated to write, write those standards. Unfortunately, our role does not start till that bill is put into law. Our role right now is working with some of the entities that are working on some of those uh, standards apart from the federal government. So we have staff that are working with some entities that, and also industry in being part of the conversation of accessibility. We just don't have the authority to actually uh, regulate, put them into standards that would be um, something that uh, industry has to follow. Till, till the legislation becomes law, we don't have the authority to do that. But that doesn't mean that we don't work on those uh, on the sidelines with, you know, like, like I said, uh, with, in the private sector and other, orga- other organizations that are working on these kind of standards. So, similar to the medical diagnostic, similar to the fitness one, the me- medical diagnostic uh, equipment as well. We, you know, the Access Board does have a standard on a limited medical diagnostic equipment uh, standard on that was passed under the ACA that we have uh, for uh, um, within, uh, excuse me, uh, within patient care. It does not address the accessibility of all the equipment that we would use in a home base. So the work that we've done so far that we've been given authority is very limited, but um, we are having conversations with FDA on some of the other additional accessibility um, that needs to be addressed. We've been also been working with HHS on some of the accessibility barriers that exist. But um, again, like I said, we don't have the authority to really um, write the standards till it's been given, uh, till we've been granted the authority. Thank and, you, uh, Sachin. Oh, and yes, Anne. And, and I'll jump in and, and say that's right. Um, you mentioned our chairman, Andres Gallegos, and he, uh, on his first day, um, he, let everybody know he put his flag down and he said, um, I'm going to be, my tenure is going to be about health equity for people with disabilities. And um, we're going to, we're going to be pushing the peanut um, as much as we can through my, my remaining time on the council on health equity. So um, we've been laser focused on that. Um, and, and in very recent days, some of you may be familiar with our health equity framework, which we just released a couple of weeks ago. Um, it is a living document. In the, in the framework itself, we have four foundational planks that we have spelled out um, as seen that we view and the, the folks that we've been working with on the framework um, had viewed as foundational to establishing the health equity um, for people with disabilities, but certainly not comprehensive um, in its scope. One of those was the AMDE, the Accessible Medical and Diagnostic Equipment. Um, We've been really focused on getting the standards um, that exist that the Access Board has done such a great job on um, memorialized uh, by DOJ and HHS OCR so that they can become enforceable. Um, And as um, Sachin just mentioned, they are um, not as expansive as they could be, the existing standards, 
Um, and so, you know, would really invite ACB's um, review of our health equity framework to the extent that we can um, expand upon it. Um, one of the things we messaged on it right away, and it's available on NCD's website on our homepage and also under healthcare on our categories tab on the far left. Um, if you navigate the homepage, um, we have a, um, the AMDE in particular really has that physical and mobility focus, uh, mobility disability focus. Um, and as such an um, reference, we've been really focused on the um, facilities where people go to get treat treatment rather than um, in-home use of, of equipment. Um, but uh, going back to, hearkening back to the distinction that we made between Access Board and NC NCD, we can absolutely call for things that are not, right? So um, the bills that you're referencing, um, we have a, a pretty long history of, um, of actually reviewing bills that have been introduced. And when we think that they are absolutely um, consistent with what we're recommending on a principles level, we actually will go so far as to recommend specific bills to Congress. So um, would love to hear more about the bills that you're referencing and see if, if um, we have committed to um, looking at regular intervals to our health equity framework to expand upon it. And this won't surprise any of you. Um, we were incredibly gun shy in, um, in publicly unveiling the health equity framework because we were sure we had forgotten things. And um, the day that we unveiled it, we heard from just scores and scores of people, you know, by and large, very, very um, effusively praising the framework and excited about it. But invariably, we had forgotten and overlooked things. <laughs> and so immediately, folks, you know, we we like that, you know, what's the hallmark of a good advocate? They're loud, right? <laughs> so um, squeaky wheel us, you know, like, let us hear from you specifically about our health equity framework. And some of the, um, the bills that were just referenced sound perfect for inclusion in our um, our refresh in the next time that we we open it up to make some additions. We've we've got a laundry list already started. So um, we'd love to set up a meeting with with all of you and um, and hear more about what, how we can be a little bit more, even more inclusive than what we were trying to do um, right out of the gate. Uh, but that health equity framework is one that I'd point folks to. Um, we did a, uh, a wholesale report on accessible medical and diagnostic equipment last May. Um, but again, it was very much focused. We had um, had a, a pretty discouraging meeting with um, the Department of Justice in 2020, um, where we encouraged them to go ahead and um, accept um, the access board standards. And at the time, they issued kind of a challenge back to us and said, you know, we just don't know if we, we have enough information to, to act. And we took it as a challenge. And we, um, we wrote a whole report on it. <laughs> And you'll see if you read that report that even in the transmittal letter, we essentially said um, to the president in the transmittal letter, we wrote this for your Department of Justice who um, told us they didn't have enough information to act. And so here you go. <laughs> Here's a 150 page report that, that lays the case um, for why, why DOJ needs to act. So um, we were really heartened to see both DOJ and HHS OCR indicate in the unified agenda their intent to um, pursue rulemaking um, inclusive of the, 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 uh, the standards that, that Access Board has worked so hard on. Um, so we're, we're very excited about that. Um, we do have two items in the health equity framework that specifically speak to um, uh, 
some of the legislative uh, priorities in principle that you're referencing. Um, one is uh, we call specifically for Medicare coverage of low vision devices. Um, so we don't cap that in, in any particular manner, but we say that that's absolutely um, essential for health equity. Uh, and another one we, we have um, that strikes me as one that we might need to tweak with your help is um, we call for mandating that municipal park districts and hospitals that receive federal financial assistance um, that they have to provide fitness facilities that are inclusive of commercial grade strength and cardio equipment that can be used independently by people who are blind and low vision. Um, and we're, we're calling on DOJ and HHS to take um, a leadership role in, in those respects. Um, so those are just two, two quick highlights that I could mention, Clark. And thank you so much for highlighting those, uh, those items within the health equity framework. Uh, certainly low vision coverage is something that ACB and our members have been advocating for, for, for quite some time. And we look forward to working with you on those items as well as uh, ensuring the non-visual access for uh, durable and diagnostic equipment. So thank you. Uh, one more item re related to healthcare before I, I turn it over to Swatha here, and that is dealing with telehealth and telemedicine. Um, so is there anything that either NCD or that the access board is doing to uh, ensure accessibility in telehealth services? Um, I, I can jump in there first. This is Anne. Um, one of the things that we've been engaging, um, we've had a lot of conversations within the four corners of our health equity framework and then also outside of the four corners, um, just generally speaking on health equity in principle with a, a lot of our federal colleagues. Um, we have the, the great fortune right now, I mentioned pushing and pulling at NCD. Um, because in the very early days of the Biden administration, um, President Biden uh, issued the equity EO, which was very, very helpful. He set the tone very early in the administration that he had an expectation of all of his cabinet level agencies um, to, to do everything they could in their power to look at rulemakings and guidance and um, anything and everything that was within their power um, to advance equity for underserved communities and um, specifically identified people with disabilities among the groups um, mentioned as an underserved community. Um, for that reason, we've been reaching out on our health equity framework across um, offices and divisions within HHS and have had you know, very much a receptive audience um, in terms of interest in, in the things that we're raising. Um, I think due in large part because of the equity EO. Um, so that I think there's a, there's a confluence of political will and um, direction set early in the, in the, the administration by the president that's really helping um, in terms of willingness to engage. And on the telehealth side, um, one of the things we heard very early when we started working on our health equity framework in its developmental stage, we heard from the sensory disability communities, plural, um, about the inaccessibility of telehealth, generally speaking, for, for so many people, um, as well as electronic health record platforms, um, both of those being um, heavily emphasized during the pandemic and both of them being extraordinarily problematic for um, blind and deaf communities for different reasons. Um, and so uh, I'll, I'll share too, we did a Hill briefing on our um, health equity framework just a couple weeks ago and had a, a really good uptake from the committees of jurisdiction. And one of the staff members who's low vision 
immediately following um, asked the question during our Q&A. She said, you know, I know this, I'm making this about me, but um, I can't access my, my electronic health records and um, telehealth platforms are incredibly difficult for me to use. Uh, you know, what's NCD saying about that? So um, we have heard that loud and clear um, from the beginning of our, our work on the health equity framework. And we're raising the profile of those issues everywhere we can. Um, one of the, the places that we sit to is um, there are a lot of tables that have been convened in this administration. Um, Sachin and I both um, join a number of um, interagency um, work groups that are um, tied to, to disability. And um, uh, a number of them have been looking at uh, and talking through the equity executive order and what they can do. And we've been, um, a lot of times behind the scenes, we've been trying to, to raise the profile on some of these issues. So uh, within our health equity framework, we're certainly pushing on it. And we're, we're hopeful that um, in light of uh, telehealth being kind of here to stay and having an outsized um, role during the pandemic, um, we're really looking at, uh, at insisting that something be done um, sooner rather than later so that the, the access problems that have been prevalent um, and extensive throughout the pandemic can be finally addressed. Um, and, and I should mention too, Clark, we did a, um, a progress report, uh, which is our one statutorily required report a year that we send to Congress. We, we do a lot of discretionary reports, but that's the one that we have to do every year. Um, last year's report we made about the impact of the pandemic on people with disabilities. And in that progress report, we also highlighted the, um, the, uh, the access issues with telehealth. Um, so we, we've been trying in a number of ways to, to raise the profile um, on, in Hill briefings and, and in our conversations with policymakers as we advise. Thanks. Uh, just to add real quick, we, we haven't had any direct role in the uh, telehealth space other than working with entities, uh, especially working with HHS and really pushing the conversation on accessible platforms in the, in the healthcare space. So that's been a conversation, we've been, an ongoing conversation we've been having. We, we haven't worked on any particular standards or regulation on it, but uh, we are engaging uh, other federal agencies that have even a DOJ when it comes to what what needs to be a priority when it comes to accessibility for accessing medical information or um, accessing a, a physician in a more accessible platform. Yeah, I'm glad that Clark brought telehealth because my next question has to do with web access, web accessibility. Um, you guys mentioned um, your, the work you do in making telehealth, telehealth, telehealth accessible. Um, so could you both speak to the work you're doing um, more broad in web access more broadly, like in web and application access more broadly? Yeah. So one, one thing, this is Sachin again, the access board. So one area, obviously, the access board has been involved, which I mentioned earlier, is Section 508. We put out our refresh in 2017, and uh, we continue to work with uh, agencies to really ensure access, you know, web accessibility and digital accessibility is a high priority within federal government. Uh, we work closely with GSA uh, in, uh, on this topic. Now, Anne mentioned about the executive orders on equity. So that's, uh, that's a conversation that 
has raised the awareness of uh, digital accessibility within the federal government. And we've been playing a pretty significant role to ensure that becomes a priority, not, not just because Section 508 has been in existence for a while, but elevating the importance of digital accessibility more than it has in the past uh, within federal space, not just internal uh, accessibility for employees, but also external public facing accessibility. It, it's a, in the federal government, it's, it's slow moving. And uh, unfortunately, accessibility does not always get to the forefront of uh, the big main conversations in, in leadership. Uh, there has been a shift uh, under the current administration, and it's, it's promising to see the spotlight accessibility has been receiving, um, especially around digital accessibility. And this is Anne. Um, I would say uh, in 2019, that progress report that I, uh, I mentioned, that annual report we have to do every year, um, in 2019, we, um, we took a tact in 2018 and 2019 where we, um, we looked at, has the promise been kept, um, was kind of the, the framing that we used for those two reports. And um, we basically said, no, uh, it hasn't in, in any number of ways. And we looked at federal enforcement of disability rights laws. And in the 2019 report, we, um, one, of our, one of the big recommendations we made was for DOJ to to move forward without you know, any more delay on, um, on web access standards. Um, and what we've been doing is since that time um, is trying to ensure too, we know that um, in several budgets, we, we follow the budget um, cycle, the president's budget, and then obviously what happens in Congress is usually fairly divorced from the president's budget. Um, and one of the things that we, we like to look at at the staff level is what the funding levels are for various agencies that have enforcement authority or um, are being called on by us to, to, to take certain actions. And one of the things that we've, we've noticed is um, in several recent years, um, DOJ's um, disability rights section within the Civil Rights Division um, has not gotten quite the investment that some of the other divisions have gotten. And so um, one of the things that we're looking at now um, is how can we have some conversations on the Hill um, to sensitize some of the appropriators and, and other folks um, as their advisors that we really need to, to ensure that there's adequate resource at DOJ in the disability rights section so that they can pursue a robust uh, rulemaking agenda. Um, and so we're hopeful um, that the web access regs may be something that are you know, queued up yet for, um, for attention and get over the finish line in this, uh, this administration. Um, and we're trying to do whatever we can on the back end to, to kind of shore that up. Um, we also, early in the, the pandemic, um, we reached out to um, the National Conference on State Legislatures. And um, if you're not familiar, there's, there's kind of two um, state government associations that um, NCD likes to liaise with pretty regularly on um, federal matters that play out at the state level. So that's, that's why we, we liaise with them. Um, the National Conference on State Legislatures is actually a, um, it's, if you've ever been to their national conference, um, it's, it's probably about five to seven to 8,000 people um, pre-pandemic. Um, they, they get convention centers and they completely pack them. And they're, they're legislators from around the country, um, from state houses, and they, they show up and they organize their agendas and their sessions based on their committees of jurisdiction. 
and they tackled the different topics. And one of the things that um, we liaised with them very early on in the pandemic, um, and we're able to do some blog posts with them and some podcasts with them, was about um, as your states are pushing out and localities are pushing out information on vaccine access and treatment access and um, masking and safety and and all of these things, are your websites accessible or are they not? And um, we found in a lot of instances, um, you know, n- nobody, we tend to never find anyone who's like out to create an inaccessible website, right? It's people who are just moving too fast and not thinking through their obligations and not thinking through um, accessibility in a way they should. So they were, um, you know, very eager to, to get resources and be, um, made aware of community partners that they could reach out to, um, et cetera. But those are those are kind of some of the things that we've been working on just in the recent term um, on the web access front. Thank you. And ACB, along with our partners, the American Foundation for the Blind, National Federation of the Blind, and National Disability Rights Network, uh, just led a, a sign-on letter of more than 180 uh, national and regional organizations urging the uh, Department of Justice to finalize web access uh, regulations within the the current Biden administration. So we certainly uh, share your enthusiasm for those web access standards to be uh, to be finalized. May it be so. Yes. (laughs) And actually, Swatha, since a lot of the conversation is focused on the uh, equity executive order, do you have a a follow up question related to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just, I just with, uh, wanted to ask um, if you both could speak to the implementation and the progress of the DEI and A executive order um, that was put out last year by, by President Biden. I can take a stab at it first. Uh, this is Sachin. So, uh, the DEIA executive order uh, 14035 that got introduced in June. Initially, when the conversation started, so there was a diversity, equity, inclusion uh, executive order that came out right when the administration started, which was more outward facing. And then the conversation started within the administration on having this a similar executive order for. Uh, within the federal government for all federal agencies to to follow. When that conversation started, one of the biggest piece that we, uh, many of us who were involved in the drafting of the executive order pointed out to the administration was the lack of accessibility being more prominent in the executive order. The initial draft really did not have. So the initial draft was just going to be DEI we wanted to make sure accessibility was elevated to the top as well, because accessibility often becomes just another bullet point when it comes to the conversation of inclusion or equity, but it, it's not the same. It needs to have its own prominent um, showcasing of why it is important to have accessibility. So that's, so that's why the DEIA uh, executive order was slightly different from the initial one that came out for the outward facing. Um, if you have, if you, if you've seen the executive order, the U.S. Access Board is specifically called out in the executive order 
for uh, working with federal agencies on accessibility of built environment. We also work uh, been asked to work when it comes to uh, digital accessibility as well. So we've been heavily involved in a lot of conversation when it comes to what the federal government at large needs to do when it comes to accessibility. Um, one of the biggest barriers the federal government that has when it comes to accessibility is a lot of this, uh, especially the digital accessibility, it's been self-evaluation. Uh, it's been self-monitoring of the accessibility there. Some agencies, even some agencies do better than others, but even within those larger agencies, there's definitely a, a, a shortfall in which sections of those agencies actually really do accessibility as well. So kind of elevating the importance of how these accessibility needs to be laid out. And one of the pieces that I've been pushing for strongly for the big departments is to have the CEOs for these departments to be invested in the conversation around accessibility because if you don't have a buy-in of the CIOs of these big agencies, it's not going to go anywhere. So well, one of the roles that we've been playing is to really elevate and make it almost make it a requirement for CIOs to prioritize accessibility in every um, whether it's budgetary uh, request that they put forward or whether it is um, other priorities in how they write policies within their departments when it comes to IT-related items. So, like I said earlier, it's, it's frustrating because it takes time, but it is uh, promising because that there's been more momentum happening in the last year on this topic than I've seen historically before. Um, I hope this, uh, this is a, a good sign in what accessibility content would look, will look like coming out of the federal government being the largest employer in the country. We need to set the example on what uh, employers should be doing when it comes to accessible content, not just digital accessibility, but also physical accessibility as well, because uh, we, we do have a lot of barriers when it comes to physical barriers as well. Uh, it, the one thing I would ask for all of you as advocates is to, is to continue to push federal agency and put those uh, red flags out there when there are outward facing content for federal uh, content that's out there if, if it's not accessible. But also if you have uh, members and other uh, blind individuals or people with disabilities that you know that work in the federal uh, government, try to get that information, you know, try to get them to advocate within their federal uh, agencies about the importance of accessibility because it, it is it, it is going to take all of us to make this continue to move forward. Even though this administration has made it a high priority, we all know administrations come and go. We want this to stay on, not just for this administration, but also after, even for future administrations. Right. Thank and you. I oh, go ahead, Ann. I, I can't add much to what Sachin said other yeah. than, you know, we're we're very heartened by the leadership that Access Board's been playing. They're obviously recognized as the technical experts and 
um, we're all really fortunate that they've been um, playing the, the large role that they have. Um, I echo what Sachin was saying about getting the buy-in of the CIOs in the federal agencies. Um, and think it's it's absolutely essential that the budget requests do reflect these um, these things as priorities because that's that's what happens um, when agencies put forward their budget requests. Um, you know, it's a it's a, lot, a little bit of sausage making here, but uh, when we put forward our our congressional justifications and we put forward our um, our requests each year, we we write narratives as agencies about you know basically the things that are important that we need money for, right? Um, and so, it, again, um, things get money when they're important, right? <laughs> so if, if accessibility can become part of that narrative as like a critical piece and that's um, consistent with the EO, you know, I, I, I agree with Sachin. We have a real chance of getting um, the roots low enough, um, you know, in the ground that no matter what um, happens in future elections or future administrations that um, we don't see, uh, we have enough of, of the roots, you know, tapping down low enough that we we can hold on to some of these good things that are happening. Um, and the only other thing I'd add as, as something of encouragement is um, I can't remember, and I've been in government 13 years, federal government, um, I can't remember a time where there's been a greater frequency of calls about an EO. Um, I don't know if Sachin would agree with that, <laughs> but they are, um, these calls are happening all the time and um, and they're very well attended. Um, so it's not like they're sending the interns. They're they're um, they're sending high level people to them. Um, there's a, a number of resources that have been developed for agencies, and um, so there is a lot of really encouraging momentum right now. Um, and I just would also echo what Sachin already said that um, if um, if folks are um, aware of of blind and low vision employees within agencies that can raise some of these um, raise the profile of some of these things. Um, oftentimes an agency will make decisions on a, a person by person basis because they, you know, they want to invest in their employees, but it has ripple effects, um, you know, across other decisions that are made. So, um, asking, asking questions and referencing the EO, you know, this is, this is the time to do it. Um, it would be very impactful. So, um, just again, uh, agreeing with everything Sachin had to say. And I just want to add one thing real quick, Clark, uh, you know, what Anne said, the frequency of the conversation right now on this topic is really high, which, which is why it's important for as advocates to really push um, to make sure that if a department is not really working on the accessibility uh, front as much, we need to really engage with those departments if, 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 yep. if no federal employees that are not seeing that a shift in accessibility because like I said earlier some departments there's probably subsets of those uh, departments doing good work but the rest of the department might not be even bothering with the accessibility that's a good reminder for folks as well and I, I know we're coming up on the end of our time here um, so I quickly want to turn to Janet to see if we have received any questions from our listeners, because I could keep talking and asking you all questions all day. Uh, but unfortunately, we have some constraints that we're trying to work within. So Janet, do we have any questions? We do have some questions. And what I'll do, the ones that we don't get to, I will forward on, for those of you listening, I'll forward them on to Clark and Swatha so that they can get back to you with the answers. I had someone who wanted to know what part of the ADA covers the internet. And web accessibility. Is there a part? And I 
Sure. Uh, so I'm happy to to answer that question and probably uh, more fully offline. Uh, but whether it's a good or service offered by the government, it can be covered under Title II of the ADA. Whether it's a good or service offered by uh, places of public accommodations, it can be covered under Title III of the ADA. And if there are goods or services offered by employers um, on the internet, however, the services are inaccessible, it could be covered under the interference language of Title V of the ADA. Um, so even though the ADA was written in 1990, I think there are many aspects of the ADA that apply to uh, website and online accessibility. All right. Then I had, do you want to take a couple more? Or? Sure. How about one more? All right. I have a woman who, and I think this is just a matter of concern for her. She uses a, it sounds like a large screen uh, glucosimeter, and she's concerned that we're talking about that uh, glucose readers need to have talking features, and she's concerned that Medicare won't cover her large screen um, glucosimeter, but I'm sure the, so yes. if you want to speak about that. Yes, thank you, Janet. And that's something that um, I'll answer that by saying, stay tuned for our next session, which will be an overview of our legislative imperatives, which includes the medical device non-visual accessibility act. So we can certainly get to that question there. Um, Sachin and Anne, thank you so much for joining us here. If folks want to learn more about the Access Board and stay up to date on the work that you're doing, Sachin, what's the best way for them to do that? So our website, which is access-board.gov, is a wealth of information. We also have ongoing webinars on whether the accessibility of the built environment or the digital accessibility, which is monthly. But we also archive all our previous uh, webinars that we've done uh, on, on these different topic areas. So there's a lot of information that's available on our website when it comes to anything to do with accessibility. And Anne, a similar question to you, what's the best way to stay up to date and learn more about the National Council on Disability? Our website is uh, no dashes, ncd, nancycatdog.gov. Um, and we like the Access Board's new website so well that we are going to copy it. <laughs> We're in the middle of a, uh, a website redo. Um, and I mention that only because once we unveil our new website in July of this year, we will also be um, uh, resurrecting our long, um, long forgotten listserv. And you will be able to sign up for emails from, from NCD as well on our website. We currently are not um, doing any, but we will be again in July. That's great. Well, again, uh, Anne Summers McIntosh and Dr. Sachin Pavithran, thank you both for your time here today and helping us kick off the 2022 ACB Legislative Seminar. Yeah, thank you both for your time today. My honor. Thank you. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to this uh, second Connect Show of the day, and hope you have enjoyed the first part of the legislative seminar. I am Cindy Hollis, and here with... Colby Garrison. <laughs> and we are just so excited to be able to take part 
in the DC Leadership Conference and be able to keep us connected, keep keep things moving along between segments of the programming. And right now we are here with a couple of ladies who really have a kind of a cool job they get to talk about, and that is recognizing special people for their work uh, and for who they are. And so, Connie, you are co-chair of the awards committee for ACB, and Katie Frederick uh, is chair of the Board of Publications. Both of you, I know, are soliciting nominations for awards. So let's start with you, Connie. Why don't you talk to us about awards, what people need to do, and what you're looking for? Thanks, Cindy. Thanks, Kobe. I'm happy to be here. Um, So yeah, so I am co-chair with Katie Murth. Carrie. Carrie, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's been a long couple of days. (laughs) 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 Uh, So um, yeah, thank you. Um, So yeah, we are looking for awards for, um, we had different categories. So I went, just go through the names of the categories. They are the Derwick K. McDaniel, um, the George Card, the James Olson, uh, Robert Bray, Marjorie Beeman, and the Affiliate Outreach. So all of them are national awards except for the Affiliate Outreach, and that is for a local chapter that a president needs to um, nominate one of their local chapters who has done um, an outreach program in their community. It made a huge difference. Um, all of the criteria is in the Braille forum for January, and we can go through a lot of that, but we have a deadline of April 1st for mm-hmm. getting them into us. So it's coming up yeah, here just before we know weeks. it. Yeah. A couple of weeks. So before that, we are having a community call on March 24th, and we have invited Carrie to um, we've kind of joined forces this year, which I think is great, you know, more the better, um, to promote the BOPs and the awards. And so one last pitch right before the deadline. But so we'll have that on um, the 24th of March. But you have to basically tell us what that person or organization, and a couple of these don't have to be ACB organizations or people, they just have to do um Recognition of what they've done on a national level to help the blindness community. So each per, each category has um, different criteria. So everyone knows Marjorie Beeman, or a lot of people do. So that's what a lot of people know. Um, and that's the volunteer award. So she has been the queen of getting all of the, making sure all the conventions are accessible, all the hotels, making through. So she's, that's where that one's named after. So that's what a lot of people know that one. And then the Durward K. McDaniel is our founder of ACB. So some cool criteria for that one. And you've actually received an award. I, I did. Past. Yeah. George Card. George Card yes. Award for Leadership and very big honor. Shocked. I was I, not often in my speechless, but that particular night at the banquet, I, I definitely was caught speechless. That's good. See, we love to do that. So that's, we love to surprise people and surprise. So yeah, and that's a huge honor. So that's another yeah, one. So um, yeah, I you know it's great to have be able to have that to you and whoever. But it's always fun. We present them at the banquet if we can. 
um, and surprise people. That's what the fun part is that we can surprise. You know, I chaired that committee and I loved finding ways to surprise people. It was like one of my favorite, favorite parts of serving as chair was figuring out how could we get somebody in the room without them knowing they were going to receive, right? So yeah, that's always a fun challenge, but I think it's fun, you know, that's part of it. Uh Um, So submit stuff. You need to email both Carrie and myself, and I'm going to share our emails. Um, So Carrie's is C-A-R-R-I-E dot M-U-T-H dot A-C-B-O at gmail.com. And mine is K-O-N-I dot L dot S-I-M-S at gmail.com. So when you submit something, you have to submit it to both of us. Um, but and, we, and of course, if anybody is not sure of those email addresses, you can always email community at acb.org and Colby or I will uh, send you those email addresses so you can submit them. So yeah. we won't forward them, but we will send you the information you need. And yeah. I know some people have had questions too. So, um, you know, Cindy has my contact information. So if you have questions and don't want to email, if you want to just talk, I've had a couple of people do that. Just um, reach out to Cindy and Cindy can get in touch with me or Would share my number. To. Yep. So, yeah, but yeah, so it's kind of fun. Um, a lot of information about each of them, but, you know, we really don't have a whole lot of time and we want to give Katie some time to talk about hers. So, um, but yeah, so go to acb.org and look up under awards committee and you'll get all the information or the Braille forum in January has all the criteria and information about each person. All right. And if you don't mind sticking around in case we have a little extra time. All right, Katie, talk to us about the BOP awards. Yeah, so not to sound like a broken record, um, but we do have some similarities with the awards committee. So our deadline for the BOP awards is April 1st as well. And those nominations need to go to the marvelous editor of the Braille Forum, Sharon Lovering. And her email address is S, as in Sam, L-O-V-E-R-I-N-G at A-C-B dot O-R-G. And she... Um, is the lucky recipient of all of the award nominations that you're going to send us. And then the BOP will, will have the challenging, difficult task of choosing only one award winner for each category. So um, because we are the Board of Publications and we focus on ACB communications, our awards are recognizing excellence in writing. So we have three award awards that we present each year. Um, This is assuming, of course, that we have nominations again. So April 1st is two weeks away. So um, get those nominations in. And the the awards that we offer are the Ned E. Freeman Award. And this award is really designed to highlight articles that were either written in the Braille Forum from April 2021 to March of 2021, or articles written in affiliate publications are also eligible as well. And those need to be submitted by the affiliate president or editor of the affiliate publication. Um, next, we have the, um, the Hollis Liggett Braille Free Press Award. And this is recognizing our affiliate publications. So um, if your affiliate has a publication that, um, you know, we know a lot of them do have great publications. So feel free to nominate that. 
um, for an award as well. And that's the Hollis Liggett um, Press Award. And that recognizes the work that goes into our affiliate publications. And the third award is the Vernon Henley Media Award. And all of these awards are great, but this is um, one that I really enjoy because it gives us um, an opportunity to recognize um, media who have portrayed the abilities, capabilities of people who are blind or low vision in a positive light. And I don't know about you all, but I know we can all use more positivity, especially when it comes to portraying us as individuals mm -hmm. who are blind or low vision, right? So, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so this is your chance to highlight those um, programs that are, that are doing that in our, in our world. And really, this can be any medium, um, you know, commercials, radio broadcasts, podcasts, mm -hmm. um, et cetera, that are, that are really getting the word out about, about people who are blind or low vision. So, um, again, our, our criterion for each award is listed in the January Braille Forum. Um, so check that out. Um, you can find that online as well as, you know, if you get the hard copy um, as well, but you can read all about it there. There are some um, things to submit with each each nomination, but um, we do look forward to um, the challenge of selecting one award winner for each of these well-deserved um, awards that we offer as the BOP. And Kitty, I uh, served on the BOP several years ago when we first put together that Hollis Liggett Free Press Award uh, for affiliate recognition. And if I recall right, uh, I think there's quite a bit that needs to be submitted for that. Um, there does, but don't yeah. let it don't let it overwhelm no, you. That's what um, I was going to say. Right. So let's, <laughs> let's, you know, let's we, we want to see a yeah. couple of issues of your newsletter and just yeah. you know um, some formats of that, and just to really see you know because it's awarded based on you know kind of the original original content, um, diverse authorship, um, you know different authors uh, putting in publication articles. And it's throughout, the president so. or or edit one of them, right? Editor the, the, or president that needs to submit yes. it. Or? Um, yeah. Yes. So, um, yes. I, yeah. And I wanted to bring that up just so that, you know, somebody might enjoy their newsletter a lot, but they, if they're a member and they're not the president or editor, they would not be able to submit that nomination. But my gosh, you certainly could encourage uh, the powers that be in your affiliate to submit and, and offer to help pull stuff together or whatever. Right. So uh, it's, it's pretty wonderful. When your affiliate gets acknowledged for their work and so many individuals go into putting these affiliate newsletters together so uh, mm -hmm. really the recognition is not just for one person it's for many mm -hmm. yes you you get a nice plaque with all of these and the plaques have print and braille on them um so that's you know an extra they're accessible plaques um and they're very nice plaques and um with the Ned E. Freeman Award, that again is recognizing articles. Um, you get a cash prize. So yes, my I don't know about you, but I got a hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mika won that so, in uh, 2020, I believe. Yeah, and so uh, one so, caveat is that if you have one in the last um, four years, um, you you're not eligible. Yeah, as well as um, of course, you know, board of directors members, BOP members, um, staff, and contractors are not eligible either. So. With those few caveats, we welcome submissions. All right. Thank you so much. I had hoped we'd have a lot of time, but we don't. So thank you, ladies. I'm going to ask um, 
Colby to jump in and just really quickly tell us what is coming up in, uh, next. Are you there, Colby? I'm here. Next, okay. we have the Legislative Imperatives Overview. Wonderful. Man, uh, I don't know about all of you, but there are four of them, and I think that'll be really great to get that overview kind of in a nutshell and have things really explained. Uh, Katie and Connie, thank you so much for sharing with us. We really do thank appreciate you. it. And uh, yeah, this has been great. I know we'll see you guys again. So yeah, get, some, get the submissions into us because we want to work. Sure. April you know. 1st, April 1st, yes. everybody. So, and watch mm -hmm. your community schedule. So, yeah. all right. Thanks everybody. We'll turn it back to the general sessions. See you guys in about an hour. Great. Thank you so much. And welcome back, everyone, to our second session of the Legislative Seminar. Um, just again, a big thank you to Dr. Sachin Pavithran, as well as Ann Summers-McIntosh from the U.S. Access Board and National Council on Disability. Swatha, what did you think of that conversation? I really enjoyed it, Clark. I got to learn a lot more about what NTD and what um, that. that app afford do so i really enjoyed that really fun performative and interesting here so and two guests that we will certainly need to have back again in the future last year acb and others submitted comments to uh, the department of transportation regarding the manual on uniform traffic control devices and including accessible pedestrian signals in the public rights of way accessibility guidelines so uh, shame on me for letting Sachin out of here without asking him where, where the PROAG guidelines stand. Uh, but then also the NCD a couple of years ago released a, a report on reforming the Ability One program. So it's certainly something that's timely uh, as we want to ensure employment opportunities and op opportunities for upward mobility for all people who are blind and low vision in the workforce. So always exciting to be able to reach back out to them and start a conversation anew. But Raswatha, that was the last session. And here we are now uh, preparing for our new session. So what do we have coming up in this hour, Swatha? Yes, Billy. So this hour we have the Leslie Imperative Imperi Overview, as we did before, um, just this time shorter. That's right. So we really want to make sure that everyone is prepared as they can be as you all are scheduling your Hill meetings with your affiliates to speak with your members of Congress and their staff. So if you've been unable to find on ACB Media the replay of the community events where we went over the legislative imperatives um, or the Advocacy Update podcasts where we discussed the legislative imperatives, we are bringing them to you um, this will help supplement the materials that are on the DC Leadership Conference website. And again, if you have questions, please email them to questions at acb.org or text or call Janet Dickelman at 651-428-5059. So Swatha, let's jump right in and let's talk about one of our first legislative imperatives. Um, yeah, the Equitable Fitness for All Act. 
So sounds great. So uh, tell me a little bit more about this imperative swapper. So, so what this imperative would do is it would set um, regulations and guidelines for gyms and other fitness facilities, fitness facilities to um, kind of have or offer um, exclusive equipment for equipment like treadmills and the classes and all that stuff. Yes, this was a bill that was originally introduced SWAPA in the 116th Congress. We're glad that uh, Senator Duckworth in the Senate, as well as Representatives uh, DeSaulnier and Young in the House, have reintroduced the bill. Um, what are the, the bill numbers, SWAPA, for exercise and fitness for all act? Yes, in the Senate, it is S2504. In the House, it is 4756. So HR. Four seven five six, and that is a bipartisan piece of legislation in the House. We're hoping to make it bipartisan in the Senate. Yeah, that's right. So you mentioned that this bill would create accessibility standards, uh, working with our friends at the Access Board for fitness and exercise equipment. Um, I think this bill would also uh, have requirements for gyms and fitness facilities to have uh, staff on hand who are trained to assist with this equipment, as well as for uh, accessible class instruction at yeah. gym and fitness facilities. Yeah, so it would mandate that gyms and other fitness facilities have at least, have at least one staff member that's trained in assisting a um, blind or, or low vision or a person with disability um, operate. And um, access to equipment. So, how often have we gotten into in the gym and have the staff members gotten to have how do how do with us? So, that's right. We'll solve it. Yeah. This will help, help us alleviate that, alleviate that, alleviate that, alleviate that. So, and this bill, it really is, well, A, it's near and dear to my heart, but it's at the core of the advocacy around ACD's Get Up and Get Moving campaign as well. So, not only um, is this one avenue that we're working to provide accessible fitness and exercise equipment? We're also working directly with manufacturers as well as fitness facilities. So last September, ACB had a joint announcement with Planet Fitness mm. for them to purchase and install accessible fitness and exercise equipment at their 2000 locations. Um, but we need accessibility standards for the manufacturers uh, to be able to build too. Right. Yeah, and the staff, the staff of fitness will really help in that regard because it's one thing. It's one for Clark. Well, one, one for Clark to say that he wants a treadmill is successful, but another thing for like a giant conglomerate or like um, a, a big fitness fitness giant um to say that. So that's right, and um, we've actually have a, a special guest um, who hopefully can join us a little bit early here to also talk about the importance of this legislation and this imperative. Uh, Rick, are we able to play that video? Yes, we are. Here we go. Thank you to everyone who's uh, joining the American Council the Blind um, Conference. Just really appreciate being asked. And I've been very thrilled to have a bill that would help people with disabilities uh, be able to get exercise and exercise um, 
their opportunity to take care of themselves at, at gyms um, and follow their physical exercise uh, routine um, without obstacles. So our bill, um, the Exercise and Fitness uh, for All Act, H.R. 4561, would make it easier and require the Department of Justice to come up with guidelines to make sure that you, um, people who suffer from blindness, will be able to get through to these facilities in a way that's uh, convenient and assures your equal ability to get the exercise you choose to do. So I'm thrilled to do that. Thank you for your advocacy. Thanks for your input. And um, just want to say congratulations for all the work that you do and your tenacity to make sure that all Americans have access uh, equally. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Congressman. It's on the air. Um, yeah. From the great state of California. California. So, yes, uh, in the bill, again, here in the 117th Congress in the House, it is H.R. <laughs> 4756. And Senate is 2504, S2504. Yes. And I think, Swatha, an important thing for folks to keep in mind when meeting with their members of Congress is just sharing those personal stories of going to a gym. So, for example, I know if we were in person for the D.C. Leadership Conference or this summer at the annual conference in and Omaha. convention, that's right, in Omaha, there's a lot of work that goes into uh, making the fitness facilities at those venues accessible. It's done by ACB staff working in conjunction with the hotel staff and organizers. Uh, but even still, you, there are many times we go to a hotel or a fitness facility that we're not familiar with, and you hope that it has uh, you know, a good cell service so that you can FaceTime a family member or call up Ira or Be My Eyes to navigate uh, the equipment. Otherwise, and I know I've done this, just, just mashing every button I can, trying to get the machine to react so that I can get a workout in, yeah. um, you know, to supplement the, the 10,000 steps I make with the ACB walk or going from the general session to breakout rooms. Or just bring your, or just bring your friend along with you and have them do it for you. So that's what I do. So. <laughs> There you go. Uh, but we shouldn't always have to do that, right? Like this equipment, we know the technology exists. We've seen this done in the market before. And it just, it's at a point now that this just needs to be a requirement. You know, international standards have existed since 2013 to have tactile user interfaces as well as audible output. Um, everyone has, using assistive technology can always showcase that, especially if it's something as small as a smart watch or a smartphone. Certainly, if we can have accessibility included in these devices, we can have accessibility included in much larger fitness and exercise equipment. Yes, it's important to note to your congressman or senator that um, this technology already exists. So it's not like you're asking to reinvent the wheel. So. That's right. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get some additional questions on the Exercise and Fitness for All Act. But at this point, uh, Janet will ask you to hold questions for S2504 
and HR 4756 until we run through the other three. All right, which one do you want to tackle next, Swatha? Let's do the medical, medical device number All right, another legislative imperative that is uh, key to ACB's Get Up and Get Moving campaign, and also an issue that has been the subject of several ACB resolutions over the years, and that is ensuring accessibility uh, for durable medical equipment. But this bill goes even broader than that, doesn't it, Swatha? It does. It goes on. Um, what, what the bill does, it, it, it would establish standards for non-visual accessible on device with digital interfaces. So it would add buttons or it would add like a switch output to the devices. Um, so any class two and class three medical device has digital interface would have accessibility built in. It's that goal of the, of the bill. So. Yeah, so the this bill would amend the uh, Food and Drug Cosmetics Act. Uh, basically, when new uh, medical devices, class one, two, or three, are coming to market, manufacturers need to take into account uh, a list of requirements provided by the Food and Drug um, and Cosmetics Act to be implemented by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And this would add to their criteria for class two and three medical devices with a digital display, as Swatha mentioned, that they need to be non-visually accessible. And if they are not non-visually accessible, double negative there, uh, if they can only be accessed visually, then these devices will not meet the requirements of the FDA. So what are class two and three medical devices? So I guess what first, what's a class one device? So class one, according to FDA, is a device that's non-invasive or that is minimally um, invasive. So like a derotter or a tongue depressor, um, things that you don't have to like, things that won't cost injury to you won't, or don't, that don't need an accessible interface, so. Yeah. So, for example, the chair that you sit in when you have with the armrest, when you get your blood pressure checked, uh, that's considered a class one device. Um, class two and three devices, you know, interact with the body, um, may be surgically implanted in the body. So, Swatha, what are some examples of class two and three um, yeah. devices. So um, class two would be like an insulin pump or medic or glucose monitor. And class three would be like a pacemaker or a chemotherapy treatment. So things that go into your body, things that like are implanted, are implanted in your body for a period of time. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many of these devices that are available in the market today have digital displays like continuous glucose monitors and insulin pumps. Um, heart monitors that you wear for 21 or 30 days. Um, and it's these devices that need to provide non-visual access, whether that's through uh, tactile user interfaces, audible output, but they need to be they need to be manufactured in a way that people who are blind or people who are low vision who cannot gain access to all of the information and services available through the screen are still able to privately and independently have access to these devices so that we can take control of our health. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this bill is not, um, it's only, it only, only exists in the House as, as of now. So it's H.R. 4853 and introduced by, by Congressman Jan Schakowsky of Illinois. So, yeah, I'm very proud of my state and home state right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of good legislation coming out of the, uh, the great state of Illinois. Uh, Swatha, another thing to highlight about H.R. 4853, the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act, is that this is now a bipartisan piece of House legislation. Yeah, so there are both Republicans and Democrats sponsoring the bill in the House. Yes, and another item that I'll highlight about the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act, and pretty soon I'm just going to say, and one more thing, and just one more thing, (laughs) just over and over again. But yes, another item for this bill is that this bill is a shared legislative priority and imperative of both the American Council of the Blind and the National Federation of the Blind. So both of our organizations have uh, affiliates for members um, who have diabetes, and it's an issue area that both organizations and our affiliates and members have been working on for quite some time. This bill was introduced last year and at the, the strong urging of the Get Up and Get Moving campaign and ACB Diabetics in Action. Um, we are supporting this legislation as a legislative imperative. The NFB, they held their uh, Washington meetings in early February, and we're able to get a lot more uh, co-sponsors for this legislation. I believe the bill is now over 30 co-sponsors. Well, step aside, because now it's ACB's turn, right? We need to continue to get additional bipartisan co-sponsors for this legislation, and we need to seek a Senate companion bill for this legislation. So, Swatha, as folks are meeting with their members of Congress, what are some of the important things to keep in mind and to highlight about H.R. 4853? Yes, keep in mind that your congressperson, um, their staff would love to hear your stories about the about your stories about using accessible um, medical devices and why it's so important that they have these, that they be accessible for blind and VIP and low vision people. Um, and also just the impact, it's just like the impact of having access to your, having access to your, to your own health, to your like, being able to manage your health independently and, and being able to like um, not be fixed at home because you can't, um, Take care, take, care, take care of yourself. So, and you can also mention that it's like we like, care that we're a lot. So, yeah, and I we are. It's it's also very relevant to this conversation, Swatha, that there is still a a global pandemic. Yeah, you know, we here in the United States are uh, reaching a point after two years that uh, many of us thought that and hoped that we would have reached with the pandemic. Uh, much sooner. Uh, But regardless of that, health access and health equity has been a primary focus for the nation, if not the world, right now. Uh, So what better opportunity to highlight some systemic barriers that prevent people who are blind and people who are low vision from having equal access to uh, medical care and medical devices? Um, 
than having these conversations with our members of Congress. Exactly. During a pandemic, it can be important during a pandemic that we that we have access to our and we have to manage our, our own health. So and yes. and what's the alternative? You know, if if I am unable to uh, independently operate my insulin pump or uh, you know swap out the um, the monitor uh, that my doctor has given me to check my uh, my heart rhythm and my blood pressure. The only alternative for me is to either go to my doctor's office or get a home it, health nurse. Yeah, yeah, or have a friend or family member in the middle of a pandemic come over and assist me with it. Yeah, um, potentially exposing me to unwanted pathogens, putting them at risk as well. Uh, but also violating the the privacy mm-hmm. that everyone else can enjoy when taking care of their personal health conditions. Yep. Yep. So uh, this bill never more timely that we should be advocating um, to build bipartisan support and seek additional co-sponsors as well as a companion bill in the Senate for the medical device Non-Visual Accessibility Act, H.R. 4853. All right, Swatha, legislative imperative number three. Yeah, so the, the first two dealt with our um, health, health and wellness, and these last two deal with um, infrastructure access. So this one is the Website and Application Accessibility Act, or, um, yeah, so this... This this um, imperative, it's not a bill yet. Um, we hope to get introduced. Um, would ask Congress to require the Department of Justice to promulgate standards for online online websites and online access and online apps, um, so that blind people with disabilities can use the same um, websites as non peers. And why is legislation necessary to ensure accessibility in the online environment? Because rulings on this issue have not been very consistent and have not um, revealed the the line. So, yes, there are often ongoing challenges to, to the ADA and to our rights as blind people. So that's right. So they. The Americans with Disabilities Act was written in 1990, uh, well before the internet and online services were just a ubiquitous part of everyday life. Um, If there was a pandemic back in 1990, (laughs) heaven forbid ACB was doing a virtual conference and convention over free conference call, right? Um, It would the, the programming would be so good, we get to hear the echo and hear it uh, again and again and again. Um, so here we are, though, on, on Zoom. And Zoom has done so much. Uh, there are services online that have done so much to bridge the social isolation and social distancing that our community has faced throughout the pandemic. Uh, but not all services are created equal. And not all services provide the same level of access to people who are deaf and hard of hearing, deaf, blind, um, or even to to people who are blind as others. So we are seeking 
accessibility standards, enforceable standards to be set by the federal government. Uh, the Department of Justice has been clear since the mid-90s that they have authority over websites in the online environment. They've done this in public statements. Uh, they've done this in court filings and friend of the court briefs. They've done this through reaching settlements uh, with either government entities or places of public accommodation who have had inaccessible websites and services. And it's, it's these settlements and these court rulings that um, have not always been viewed the same by certain jurisdictions throughout the country. So what we're seeking to do here is have a new law passed giving clear and explicit authority to the federal government to create a uniform national framework to provide enforceable accessibility standards for the virtual built environment. And so I say virtual built environment because nobody argues that the ADA covers the, the physical built environment, right? The brick and mortar exactly. built environment. But as more of our um, inductions and um, dealings go, virtual, go online virtual, we have like another, it's another um, environment, built environment for us too. Exactly, exactly. And uh, again, over the past two years throughout the pandemic, the virtual built environment has become just as important, uh, if not more important than the physical built environment. You know, imagine a, a school district saying, yes, we need to honor your civil rights as a person with a disability in when you are in person in the school classroom, uh, but we're going to remote learning and you can't access anything online. Exactly. And, and, and those, those rights, those don't apply anymore here in the online space. We don't need to give you information in accessible formats like we did in person mm -hmm. because now we're online. Or imagine having uh, an employer who provided you your payroll, your HR, your healthcare information uh, in an inaccessible format or through an inaccessible portal in the online space. So there, there are many examples. I'm sure we all encounter examples on a daily basis, not only for, for fun, right? Not only um, when we want to do a little retail therapy or get, get go food online. to go, yeah. right? Social media, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But real, I, I mean, not that entertainment isn't, is not important, but telemedicine, like we just spoke with Sachin and Ann about. Mm -hmm. Telehealth, uh, yeah. How important is having equal access to telehealth and to electronic health records and patient portals? So it also goes hand in hand, hand with, our, and with our other competitors that like we need access to our health and to our own um, health management. So. Yes. And, and what this bill is doing is taking a, a large comprehensive look. I, Another way to go about this would be to, to either A, continue playing the current game of whack-a-mole that we are and send countless and endless um, complaints to the Department of Education every time a new learning platform comes along that's inaccessible or to Health and Human Services every time there's an inaccessible website 
where we can't access our medical records or order prescriptions online. And we can let the offices of civil rights in those various departments and agencies uh, just go case by case by case, just as though we'd be walking down Main Street. Exactly. You don't want, you would not go building my building when you're trying to um, legislate. So why'd you go with it? Exactly. This way we can have, again, a, a uniform national framework requiring accessibility um, and have those be enforceable standards. You know, and Swatha, I think it's important to note as, as folks are doing their Hill meetings, of course, we want them to share these real world examples. But I think one question that could come up, um, you know, there's already a bill that's been introduced by Representative Ted Budd. Um, I believe it's the the Online Accessibility Act. Um, So we should have a conversation about why is that not a good approach to addressing this issue? Do you have any thoughts on on what folks should say if they get asked that question, especially folks in North Carolina? Um, Yeah, exactly. Not a problem. I try to forget about this bill as much as possible as well. Uh, a big problem is this bill requires notification. Um, oh, you, yeah. you need to mm-hmm. notify the entity that they're, that they're violating your civil rights. You need to wait for them to respond to your notification. Then you need to wait for them to fix it. Then you are allowed to file a complaint. And when you file a complaint, then the entity has another opportunity to respond. And all told, it gets close to two or three years. Yeah, two years to forget any decisions of that. So exactly, really. Long. So really, what this bill does, this uh, online accessibility act, or so-called online accessibility <laughs> act, um, it it delays accessibility online. Um, it's it's not written with the interest of people with disabilities at its heart. It's not written in a manner to provide equal access. It's written to delay accessibility and to delay equal access. And we shouldn't have to notify somebody that Mm. they're violating our rights before we take corrective action uh, to curb that behavior. I'm just thinking about it. Like you would not do do this in a case. Watch we watch 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 we do it. Watch we do. Watch should we do this too? So. Yeah, and it, and again, Swatha, we we can sit here and keep going <laughs> back and forth all day on the inaccessible websites we encounter, uh, you know, the the inaccessible user in, interfaces that we find online. But I, I think the ones that really speak loud and clear to our members of Congress and our legislators on this issue are when you can relate it to government services, mm. you know, state, local, or federal, um, if you can relate it to healthcare. One of when we did voting our, too. Well, I was going to say when we did our community event, somebody mentioned voting, yeah. uh, being able to register to vote. I mean, <laughs> what a perfect example mm-hmm. of why we need clear enforceable standards um, and standards that are communicated and uh, you know covered entities are educated on what those standards are um, by the federal government by you know working with 
departments and agencies like the Access Board and NCD uh, to help get the word out on these issues. Yep. And Clark, what is the last thing for you? I know it's a little close to your heart. So. It is. It is indeed. So our final legislative imperative for 2022 is the Communications and Video Accessibility Amendments Act. This bill has not been introduced, uh, but we are working hard. We're working hard with our colleagues and collaborating with the deaf and hard of hearing community. And it is very similar to the efforts that ACB undertook, uh, which led to the passage of the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act of 2010, the CVAA. So we've added one more A. This is the CVAAA for Amendments Act. So the CVAA was passed 12 years ago. Uh, 12 years. Can you imagine, Swatha? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, I this was, was so This was before uh, streaming video content was so prolific. Uh, cord cutting wasn't even a, a commonplace mm -hmm. term. Everyone was getting their video entertainment from their local broadcaster, from their cable company, their telecom company, or their satellite company. Uh, but since then... A lot of video entertainment and vid video communications has moved online. Um, the CVAA covered audio description and accessible user interfaces for TVs and set-top boxes. And as of December, now uh, other digital apparatuses. The CVAA also covered two-way text and audio communications. So what we're seeking is an update to the CVAA, an amendment that would expand what is required to be audio described, not just 87 and a half hours per quarter for covered broadcasters and uh, cable programmers, uh, but all, that's right, all video content. Every broadcaster, uh, not just the top, 80 designated market areas, but all 210 designated market areas would be required to pass through audio description. Not only uh, the top four broadcasters and top five cable programmers, but all programmers would be required to pass through audio description. And for advanced communication services, not only uh, would text communications and audio or voice communications be required to be accessible? But we would require the Federal Communications Commission to define and create enforceable standards for video communications services. So whether that's a platform that you're currently viewing and participating, the ACB Legislative Seminar, but also potentially video communication services. And it, I'm starting to sound like a broken record. Like you use in the classroom, like you use in the workplace, or like you use when communicating with your doctor in a telehealth appointment. Um, exactly. The, yes, the FCC would create and enforce accessibility for video 
communications services. So ultimately, you know, we seek, well, we seek a world where all video content is accessible, certainly extending those requirements to the online streaming services. And there we need to ensure that they have accessible user interfaces so that we can navigate to and uh, play and control the video content. And then that video content should be audio described as well. And there, we're working on some additional items in this uh, legislation. And we want to ensure the quality of audio description. And as, as many folks who are involved in the audio description project uh, know, as well as those who follow the Federal Communication Commission's Disability Advisory Committee, audio description quality has really three main components, and that's the, the writing of the audio description, the voicing of the audio description, as well as the, you know, the sound or audio engineering, how the audio description is mixed into the video content, you know, how much audio ducking is used, is it, um, is it delivered to the consumer at the same high level of audio quality that our sighted peers have come to expect with surround sound and Dolby Atmos and things like that. You know, heaven forbid um, we start watching a movie that's available in surround sound, um, but the audio description is only available in mono or only coming out of the left speaker channel um, and, and things like that. So quality is just important. Uh, some may even say more important to an audience only relying on their sense of hearing, who is not getting any of the visual aspects of the video programming. So we wanna ensure that the highest levels of quality are there in audio description as well. Mm -hmm. So Swatha, we've got two legislative imperatives that have bill numbers, others that for the website uh, and Applications Accessibility Act and the Communications and Video Accessibility Amendments Act, those two, we're, we're just trying to educate and inform our members of Congress and staff, and we're asking them to support injection. Yes, once the bill's introduced to co-sponsor and support these legislation. Mm -hmm. So and at this time, I think we're ready for Janet to see if we have any questions from the audience. Let's do it, let's go. Janet. Oh, we do, we do, we do. All right, um, one question that people have been asking, and I know you're gonna cover this, but I, I think we should cover it maybe right now, is again, where do you find the Hill documents? If you could give the website as to where to find that information. Absolutely, and that's something that we can uh, share over the lists again as well. Mm -hmm. um, but they are available on the DC, through the acb.org website. And that information is on the event page for the DC Leadership Conference. That's also on the homepage too. So. so you can link to it from the ACB homepage? Yeah, you can. Yeah, it's on the top headline. So. Does that also include the forms for the Hill visits and the um, legislative imperatives that you can print and or, or email or hand out to the, the representatives? Yeah, the forms are going to be mailed out. Are going to be sent out and like 
today or tomorrow. And okay. um, the documents are going to be yeah, for online as well. All right. So people, people have been asking those questions. Thank you so much. All right. I had a question about accessible exercise equipment, and the questioner wanted to know if this would also apply to community living facility, to homeowners associations and condo community groups. Um, you know what? That is a good question that I do not know the answer to. So I would have to follow up with that question. Um, I was excited to hear from our last panel from the National Council on Disability that they are working in supporting efforts to require it, um, require accessible fitness and exercise facilities and equipment for hospitals and for uh, park districts. Um, but currently, as I think the bill is written, um, I don't know if it would cover homeowners associations. It certainly would cover, you know, uh, universities, uh, government facilities, public housing, and things of that nature. All right. Thank you, Clark. And we had a couple of questions about the web about accessibility uh, for the web accessibility and uh, concerns about are we worried that the DOJ will determine that this only applies to companies, say, that have 100 employees or more or that have a certain financial presence? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And um, I would say I'm, I'm not worried about that. Mm -hmm. um, one of the main reasons I'm not worried about that is because the, the third-party vendors and companies, um, you know, the software manufacturers who are developing these online tools, who license them to companies, even companies with less than 100 employees, like, that's not their, their target market, Right. They're making these for many companies, companies of all sizes. And even if uh, somehow the Department of Justice decides that uh, companies with less than 100 employees are not going to be covered, those companies still need to purchase these software licenses. And the companies developing that software are still going to be required to make those services accessible. So I, I'm not very concerned about that. Um, I think that this legislation is going to go a, a long way to just raising the bar of accessibility so that uh, accessibility um, is included at the front end of design, testing, and development and is not just a, a bolt-on at the end of the process because they're going to want to be able to sell these products to as many companies and as many people as possible. Um, and they're not going to want to have multiple versions that they have to support. They're not going to say, okay, you know, here, here's the inaccessible version, but for everyone else, here's the accessible version. No, they'll just make one and it'll be accessible for all of us. That's wonderful news. And of course, this applies to someone asked, and I'm sure the answer is yes, this applies to places like electric companies and banks, correct? Mm. Absolutely. All right. That's, and then we had someone who asked from the last session um, yeah. to know what CIO, TIO, and EO are. 
Sure. So a bit of an alphabet soup. So that's what, last... exactly what he said. <laughs> yeah. So from the last session, uh, Sachin and Anne were talking about an executive order from the the Biden administration. That that's the CEO. Yes, that the that the president signed. And CIO is Chief Information Officer. Um, so it was. They were discussing the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility executive order. Um, and the, what that executive order has done to raise the profile of accessibility within the federal government. And saying that that has caught the attention of the chief information officers within the various federal departments and agencies uh, to make accessibility a top priority. And everybody is really excited about this accessibility because I'm getting questions saying, does this apply to kiosks and will this apply to restaurants? <laughs> and of course, the answer is yes. So those of you who've asked those questions, I don't want you to think I'm ignoring you, but it would apply to, it would apply to all to everything. So that's that's and, wonderful. And Janet, that's a great point because we, you know, the, the bill's called the Website and Applications Accessibility Act. Um, I think some folks would probably like it to be called the, the Metaverse Accessibility Act. <laughs> Because it's it's not just websites anymore, right? We don't only access information through our web browser um, at swathanandakumar.com, but there are uh, portals there that we use for healthcare or employment. There are applications on our computer, phones, and tablets, uh, but there's also uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. There are um, you know, algorithms, there are tablets and kiosks that we use to access online um, information or, or information that appears like a website or like online digital content. So all of this uh, and all of these user interfaces need to be covered uh, when we're talking about uh, the Website and Applications Accessibility Act. Yeah, much like much mentioned on, on Saturday with, with the with Fair, the with Fair, like the, the soft serve soft kiosks. The too, ice so. cream, the soft serve, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Janet, you had another question from the previous session that I think is a, a good one to, to revisit. Um, so there was an individual who said that they use a large screen display to access their either their insulin pump or their continuous glucose monitor. Yes. And, and she wanted to make sure that when we that those continued to be supported and not just talking pieces of equipment. Sure. So what we're working on, it, it wouldn't impact um, your ability to to use your large monitor at all. Uh, we're not saying, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. Um, we're not saying take away accessibility from those who have visual access. We're just saying that you need to add non-visual access as well. So it's great for those who do have the ability to interact with the, the touch screens and see the visual display. But for everyone who does not have that access, we need to ensure that there's uh, non-visual access, whether that's a tactile user interface, audio output, and things like that. 
And then I had some. Oh, go ahead, Swatha. Sorry, go go ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. You got Dan. No, it's a good. It was a good point, Swatha. Go ahead and make it. It's not either either or here. It's all. Is there everything? Everything? Everything in yeah, the space. Exactly. Good. Yep. Um, I also had someone say that if it's wonderful if we go to, uh, especially talking about the kiosks and making medical appointments and that type of thing, and she wanted to know that. If she doesn't have an iPhone, can I still call my doctor's office? Well, of course, this doesn't change anything, as you said, with the uh, glucosimeters. This isn't changing any current practices, correct? Yeah, that's true. Correct. Yeah, if, if you're able to call your doctor now, you'll still be able to call your doctor in the future. Um, the problem is that your, and maybe not your doctor, but many doctors are allowing patients or are even preferring that their patients use telemedicine portals, electronic health records, um, and are requiring their patients to check in online uh, or check in using an inaccessible kiosk. All of those services need to be made accessible. Uh, For doctors who are taking video appointments, those video players need to be made accessible. Our friends in the deaf and hard of hearing community are advocating strongly for closed captioning and American Sign Language uh, to be available so that they can communicate with the doctors. Well, it's just as important for us to ensure that the materials our doctors are sharing with us are accessible. You know, they're not an inaccessible PDF, but there's something that we can read. If there are forms that need to be filled out, we need the capability to accessibly complete those forms. And if our doctor is requiring a video appointment, we need to have access to the player controls to be able to start and stop and mute and unmute. Uh, Just like we're doing here in the leadership conference, for whatever service our doctors are using, we need the ability to have access to that service, just like all other patients. And then I had one final question, and I'm not really sure if this is, but I'm, I'm going to ask it. What she was talking about is we've all had our horror stories when we've gone to a doctor's office or a hospital where we feel that as a blind or visually impaired person, we're not treated well mm-hmm. by the provider. And is any of that addressed in this legislation? Is there so, any kind of thought yeah. for standardizing, maybe teaching or, you know, I believe that's what she was getting at. Yes, uh, that is. Um, so this legislation is focused on the underlying technology, not necessarily the human or professional training. Um, What what I will say, though, Janet, is uh, for this individual to be sure to tune in tomorrow um, during the breakout sessions where ACB's Get Up and Get Moving campaign uh, will talk about that very issue and why, as a person with a disability, it is so important to be a, a patient advocate and how to advocate for our health. Good. All right. And that's all that I have at the moment.
All right. Well, if folks have additional questions, please email questions at acb.org um, or call or text Thanks, Janet. Janet. Uh, 651-428-5059. Oh, boy. Now you both have my number memorized. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right. And Swatha, in addition to our legislative imperatives, um, there's been a, a couple other items that have come up here over the, the past week um, that I think are significant to highlight as well. So, Yeah, so... Congressman Gus Villarrocas and Congressman Maloney um, introduced or introduced the Medicare Demonstration Approach for Low, low Vision Devices Act. I think I said it. This is- you got it right the first okay. try. Nice. Yeah. Not easy. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. So what this bill would do is it would um, create like a program or demonstration program where Medicare would cover like a low vision, low vision versus use for low vision. So like a magnifier or a, um, a, um, a, um, a CCTV. So things that you use for daily, for daily living. So. Yeah. Video magnifiers, the, the, all the, the, the really, the really cool technology, right. <laughs> yeah. but, but that's also really expensive. And that's, yeah, and that's expensive. what this demonstration would do. It would set aside, um, $12.5 million over five years for um, doctors to be able to s- prescribe and have Medicare pay for these low vision devices. Um, as Ann uh, Summers McIntosh from National Council on Disability stated, uh, you know, this is really uh, an equity, health equity concern mm-hmm. that folks who cannot afford them still have access to low vision devices so that they can live independently and integrated in their community. Yeah. Um, This is something that's been a legislative imperative for ACB for a number of years. Um, It is, it is not a legislative imperative this year. It was last year. It was, it was last year. And last year we advocated uh, quite strongly, and it encouraged our members and affiliates to do so as well to try to include full uh, vision and low vision coverage in the the stimulus package and in Build Back Better, um, the bill being considered by Congress. And we thought we were successful at a, at a point in time, but eventually the price tag got trimmed. Yeah, and it just didn't happen. Yeah, Medicare coverage got taken out. Um, that was not a bipartisan effort, though, either. I, I think no, it's important it to note. Not. Yeah, this one is, though. This, this one is, though. So This bill is bipartisan. And it is, you know, it's, it's not the solution that we all know is necessary. It's not full low vision coverage. It's not removal of the, um, the eyeglass exemption where Medicare... Uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services say they won't cover anything with a lens, um, which, you know, which is applies, frankly just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. You know, applies to glasses and contacts, but also applies to low vision devices. Um, but what this bill is, is a bipartisan way to keep the conversation about low vision coverage going. Um, there are uh, over a dozen organizations that support this legislation, ACB, 
Alliance yep. of Aging and Vision Loss, AEVL. AFB. Right? Yep. Yeah. American Foundation for the Blind, Blinded Veterans Association, and the Council of Citizens uh, with Low Vision International, CCLVI. Uh, the bill is also bipartisan, not only in its sponsors, but in its uh, what, 24 original co-sponsors as well. So if you have uh, extra time in your meeting, if you're an affiliate where this issue is front and center to you, um, please feel free to advocate and build support for the uh, Medicare Demonstration of Coverage for Low Vision Devices Act of 2022. Swatha, another item I think it's important to highlight, I, I was joking earlier that uh, Sachin from the Access Board escaped without being asked about the public rights of way accessibility guidelines and the inclusion of accessible pedestrian signals. Mm. Uh, don't worry, well, he, know, he knows where we stand on this. Mm -hmm. they, he has a copy of ACB's comments that were filed at the Department of Transportation for the um, the manual on uniform traffic control devices, and we'll keep pushing uh, for the inclusion of accessible pedestrian signals. It's also very, also very relevant to your work in New York City and in Chicago. Exactly, and some big news out of Chicago last week, Swatha. Yeah, so um, it was granted status, would be right? That status? Yes, class action status. So this is a, a lawsuit uh, that. ACB's uh, Metro Chicago chapter has brought along with disability rights advocates against the Chicago Department of Transportation um, and three individual plaintiffs. And this lawsuit was granted class status, uh, meaning it is on behalf of all people who are blind, low vision, or deaf blind. Uh, yeah, or you know, similarly affected. Uh, by the inaccessible infrastructure there in the city of Chicago. All right, so I'll have a quick quiz. Uh, Chicago has over 2,800 signalized intersections, uh, meaning that have you know, lights for cars and uh, mm -hmm. walk and don't walk signs for pedestrians. Mm -hmm. How many of those have accessible pedestrian signals? At least 20, but not 130, I think, right? That's right. Not even 1%. No. Not even 1% yeah, no. of the intersections in Chicago have That's accessible pedestrian signals. Yeah. So, you know, we, everyone who's blind and low vision, everyone who's deaf blind, you know, we've, we've learned either through training or from, from personal experience, um, you know, orientation and mobility skills, how to navigate cities how to use uh, what information we have available to us, either visually or audibly, um, to navigate infrastructure. But the infrastructure is changing, it's evolving. There are new technologies that are used that don't always allow us to receive information from the flow of traffic. Um, and it can also be a very noisy environment, certainly in the city of Chicago where they have many Trains and buses and everything else around the area. And train lines that go overhead uh, make it very difficult to hear the environmental uh, traffic noises. So having accessible pedestrian signals that make noise, that vibrate, are crucial, critical to ensuring safe and equal access 
to the built environment, um, to the, the navigation services offered to all other citizens. So we were excited about the court case and the court ruling uh, regarding uh, accessible pedestrian signals in New York City last December. We're e equally excited about this step forward in Chicago, yeah. uh, but there's still a long way for this case to go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, Janet, any more questions? We did have a, we had a question, and I know you touched on it about the medical devices, but I had a question about what all of these legislative imperatives, what the cost would be, how we can talk to our senators and congressmen about costs. And then I had another question, and I'm sure you're going to talk about this a little bit, but you talked about t sharing your stories when you're talking to your legislatures. And this individual said, well, what if I don't have a story about accessible medical devices? And of course, it doesn't have to be your personal story. Maybe it's someone mm -hmm. else's, or it doesn't have to be a story. You can just recount the facts, correct? Exactly. You know, whether it's your story or you're sharing the story of a, a friend, a family member, um, a parent or a child, you know, even if it's not your uh, medical device, if you are assisting a child um, or you are assisting a, a parent or someone else, uh, it's still important that this equipment is designed to be accessible. And then the question about cost, it, this is a question that everyone likes to ask the disability community when they're <laughs> spending three, four, and $5 trillion on everything else is how much is this going to cost? Uh, and again, uh, these solutions already exist. This technology exists. Uh, what we are requiring is that accessibility is built in from the beginning where it is least expensive to do so, not bolted on and retrofitted after the fact. It is more expensive to, uh, you know, to, to tear up the road to fix something that was done uh, incorrectly the first time. It is less expensive to make everything accessible and usable by everyone uh, from day one. So, and that, uh, I think, brings us to the end of our session here. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. If you have additional questions um, that were not answered here today, you can always email Swatha and me at advocacy.acb.org. That's right. Advocacy at acb.org. And like we do on these imperatives and all other issues, keep advocating. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody, to uh, this Connect show. And we are just really glad to have you with us as everybody is moseying to their breakouts. I'm Cindy. I'm Colby. And <laughs> we are just so grateful to be able to be a part of this leadership conference. And mostly, I am extremely excited because one of my dear friends is here as our guest. So Leslie Spoon, queen of the auction, queen of donations, queen of yoga and exercise, and uh, definitely a queen friend. <laughs> Hi, Les. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Cole. 
Hey, thanks for having me. You're like my queen also. I just, <laughs> I'm in awe of you guys. It's amazing. You guys are. I, are, I like, affectionately like, refer to you as the first lady of ACB. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, it's affectionately. You. you can't turn that one away, Les. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've got an auction coming up this year. And it, even if we are doing in-person parts of convention, this auction is not. And so uh, talk to us about what it's going to look like this year. Sure. I'd love to, Cindy. Thank you for the opportunity um, to both of you. So yeah. We are kicking off the convention this year with the auction, the ACB Summer Auction this year. Um, so that's pretty exciting. It will be virtual and um, it will be June 18th, which is a Saturday. So that's a little different also. We thought we'd do it on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, people can uh, recover on Sunday, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and take a look at their their um, bank statements or, or you know, transactions. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. no. Don't do that till Monday. <laughs> Monday, Monday. <laughs> till Monday or after you get your item and you say, yay! Yay, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's all for a good cause. It goes it to ACB, is. all the proceeds, strictly to ACB, um, community and uh, engagement. And it's just, you know, that one of your words, we, we stole one of your words, engagement and power and embrace. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so uh, it, that's pretty cool. And then, of course, we will have the appetizer auction on Thursday, June 16th, and Friday, June 17th, which is so cool here in the Spoon household because I have work. It's so fun. You like appetizers, huh, Les? We love appetizers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so much fun, you know, because when we started this idea, I have to give kudos to Michael Garrett, who's on the committee. It was actually him, his idea of coming up with this um, a couple of years ago, you know, when we did the easy chair auction, I believe the first year we were virtually. And I thought, you know, we said, let's do an appetizer because some people can't make it to the main event and would like to see some of the items. And it gives people another opportunity to, to bid and it's email easy and um, phone. You can use your phone so you can do it anyway. And then it's also so cool because you know, you can see the bids go out on the emails throughout the day. So um, with the update. So everybody has been such. And they get to talk to you. Yeah. And they get to talk to me. Yeah. And Dan. <laughs> Somebody called last year and they said, is this Dan Spoon? And, they, and he said, this is the auction house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. They thought they were talking. They said, President Spoon. And he says, nope, auctioneer. <laughs> oh my gosh a new title i was like that's your new title he says yeah just for the appetizer auction <laughs> oh that's great so that's one and you know we have a lot of good items and the other good thing with the appetizers we do have a deadline which we try and really stick to but if you can't make it in you know me cindy I never turn anything down <laughs> so you know the day of somebody will call me and they're like I want to put this in. And I'm like, great. If you don't mind it being in the appetizer, it'll be in, you know, and it might go on day two, you know, but Hey, it makes it in. So that's the really cool thing with the appetizers. And isn't it amazing? All the people and affiliates that support and businesses that support the auction. So we end up with lots and lots of donations from people who just want to give and support 
our work, which is, I think, just amazing as well. I do too. You know, it's amazing. Every year, I love, this is my favorite time of the year, leadership. I mean, I miss seeing you and Colby and getting to meet Colby and have hugs from her. Me too. (laughs) But, but, you know, this is my favorite time of the year. I get to call people and bug people and say, (laughs) and would you like to donate again? And, and they say, that's that pesty Leslie calling me again. And it's so hard to say no to you. I mean, look at you already asked me and I'm like, yeah, I'll figure something out. I'm going to ask Colby too. Colby. Don't don't be shy now. I'll be hitting you up. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> I got ideas for you, Colby. I got okay. some ideas. Yeah. All right. The staff. And I just can't commend you guys enough. The staff over the holiday and the last year's summer auction. Oh my goodness. The staff, the staff just went up and beyond. I mean, it was amazing. Sharon and you, Cindy, and Kelly Gask and Nancy always gives her beautiful blankets. And let's see, I I I haven't hit up Lane yet, but Lane used to contribute in the past. I think I might have to hit him up this yeah, year. I think you might. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and Eric, you know, Eric and Dan, we auction them off, you know, every year. <laughs> lunch with them. Not actually them off, but with lunch with them. So that's so nice that they keep doing that. You know, and Kim did it in the past. So the Charleston household, OMG, they just, they outdo themselves. The baking that Brian does, my gosh, right? Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah. <clears throat> It's crazy. Um, and my committee's really stepped up. You know, the committee, the auction committee, everybody on the committee gives something. Zelda and, and you know, um, Chef OMG. I can't say enough about her. Oh, my gosh. She just gives and gives what it does. she has. And, and the she makes, I mean, I've already gotten it. And it's, it's you know, it, I want to open the box and say, oh, sorry, Carrie, it was lost. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I never do that. I never open any of the boxes. You know, I've already well, started Leslie- how much did we make last year at the auction? Do oh you know? boy. Do you remember? Was it? Oh, I believe it was 42,000. Just amazing. I mean, I remember when we were in the teens and, and then when we got to like into 20 and thought we were doing great. Um, but this is just, it, it's amazing. It's grown. And the virtual auction I feel like it's just opened it up to so many more people and we're not, we used to talk about this on the committee, mm-hmm. right? About did, how yeah. the auction really, we were just catering. We, we had this little sphere of people, not little, because we would have like up to 300 people in the room, but mm-hmm. we couldn't maximize it any more than that. It was, it was kind of limited to who was at convention and well, and true, uh, fashion of the last two years and doing things virtually and and hopefully hybrid, uh, but virtually we've we've learned that if we are able to do it virtually, we are opening it to anybody that wants to participate. And so many we, more people. Yeah, yeah. And we really are, you know, guys. Because even in the community, thank you to you guys, the community, you know. I have the community people in the community members in the community now donating that I never even knew of. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, she donated some beautiful stuff. Roberta McCall. You know, just for instance, those two come to mind. You know, I don't want to ever start naming people. I'll, I'll just forget people. You know me. So, um, well, it's just amazing the community stepped up. In Belinda, you know, Belinda's giving her assistant technology again. Or I've already hit her up, and you know, she's doing that again. And it's just. It's awesome. You know, it just, it is, 
everybody gets to take part in however they can, right? That's mm-hmm. oh yeah. yeah. And and participating is a lot of fun and addictive and people they get real serious about they their get bidding and, and it, it's become <laughs> quite entertaining. Um one of the cool observations that has been made is the number of people that listen to the auction on ACB media, they they cannot bid when they're listening on ACB media, but it doesn't matter. They're just listening and laughing and enjoying oh, yeah. and, you know, it's so fun. It's so much fun. I got to tell you, Lucy knows how to bid. She, she does. And she's <laughs> quick, isn't she? She's she, quick. She just and spits you- it out. And you know what she saw, and you know what she saw, which I think is funny, Jamaica Miller. She taught Jamaica. I was on an auction last week. Jamaica was on, and Jamaica's like, blah, blah. And I'm like, you tell her how to bed. That's awesome. That's so great. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. So any, uh, any final thoughts uh, before we end? I'm so excited to have you with us. And Well, thank you for having me. Talking about thing. the auction. Be- the deadline um, mm-hmm. if you want to get descriptions into me is May 1st. Okay. Don't, don't take stuff. You know, I never turn anybody down. But if you want descriptions and you want to have it in the main auction, which is Saturday, June 18th, please get me the descriptions by May 1st. It really does help such mm-hmm. a great deal. There's a lot of work behind the scenes to get this all put together. So, yeah. yeah. I have to say something a little bit humbling. So, because the auction is so near and dear to me and my friend Cindy, this would never be possible without you and Brenda and Jeff. You guys, it's you know, amazing. It's, it's just it's amazing. amazing. I believe yeah. it's like the fifteenth year of the. That's auction. crazy, isn't it? What's the yeah. theme this year? ACB Summer Auction. All right, that works for me. And <laughs> this is the first year this auction, though, is um, supporting the work of community and membership engagement and. That is really exciting and something we can all wrap our our hearts around, I think. So that's correct. Yeah. yeah. So so whatever you give, your talent, what does Dan say? Talent, treasure, and time. Yep. Talent, yep. Community this year for the summer auction. First. Yes. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank uh, be- you. Before we change over uh, and hand it back, um, uh, Colby, can you go really quickly through the three sure. breakouts? Yep. So breakout room one we've got how how may affiliates assist the acb national office and staff with the implementation of resolutions you can hear that on acb media six in breakout room two we have different levels of advocacy for transportation pedestrian and environmental access at the federal state and local levels that's on acb media seven and breakout three is hill etiquette and role playing on acb media eight All right. And we will be back right after those breakouts at 4.30 p.m. Eastern. So we'll see you then. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks, Colby. See y'all. Have fun.